0: You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. I'm Simon. Uh, All right. There's a film by Darren Aronofsky called The Fountain, in which Hugh Jackman and Rachel Weisz play a pair of lovers. <laughs> <laughs> that's not at least dumb. I think the dog that's one. the dog's comment on the film. <laughs> <laughs> play a pair of lovers, uh, but it doesn't go Right. And so, reincarnated, in another time, they play a pair of lovers, and it doesn't go right. And reincarnated, in another time, they play a pair of lovers, and it doesn't go right. And the whole film is basically, and it's out of sequence, it's what my missus calls a WTF film. In fact, she coined the expression for this film, and she's used it for just about everything I've tried to show her since. Is this another what WTF film? <laughs> and at the end of the film that's how she talks by the way yes that's how I hear it (laughs) and at the end of the film in the far 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 future after mankind has died out and after the earth has gone well I'm simplifying this isn't quite how it goes and she's a tree but at the end of the film essentially finally it works out in other words they go through many 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 lifetimes having this love affair that's always doomed to fail until right at the end of the film it succeeds right. I know before he wrote Curse of Fatal Death and before he wrote The Empty Child and before he wrote Any Doctor Who Stephen Moffat wrote a short story called Continuity Errors for one of the bo- the uh Short trips, Mm. books. For anybody who doesn't know, continuity errors involves the seventh doctor walking into a library and he wants to borrow a book. But certain criteria have to be fulfilled before he can borrow the book. And so throughout this short story, he just keeps coming back to the library, getting told no for X reason. And he'll go off and he'll fulfill whatever criteria it is or he will change the criteria, until right at the end of the short story, finally, many, many trips later, the criteria are all fulfilled, and he can borrow this book, and he needs the book so that he can stop this war that's been going on. In other words, it's an old story, where somebody gets to go back over their life, or somebody else's life, time after time after time, changing something a little bit each time until eventually it comes right it's groundhog day yeah and it's there's a film called 1201 which came out the same time as groundhog day which is i think it's a better film actually
1: which i think is inspired by a twilight zone episode
0: possibly yeah yeah in which there's a scientific experiment goes wrong and causes the same day just to repeat over and over again and one of the people who's involved with the scientific experiment obviously works out what's going on and tries to repair it, stop it from happening, but falls in love. So there's the dilemma in the film. Do you save the earth or do you get the woman?
1: And recently Ledger Tomorrow do a very similar thing.
0: Oh, do they? Mm. I've not seen it yet. One thing I never thought I'd see is that in actual televised Doctor Who, because... How do you do that in televised Doctor Who? You can't, can you? It's just one of those things you never can do. Mm. Until today. This is a Star Trek episode
1: as well, isn't it? Uh, I can't remember what it's called. Is it called Times Loop? No, it's not. This is the one with the Mobius, where mm. the Enterprise blows up again and again and again mm. and again. And slowly but surely, the only person that kind of picks up on things is Data, because he's got this way of. sensing things outside of time sort of thing, so he can tell there are certain readings.
0: That's not Star Trek, it's Next Generation.
1: Yeah, it's Next Generation, yeah. That's not Star Trek. (laughs) How is it? It It's more Star Trek than the first series, to be honest. Oh, I don't know, running the first... Oh, no, no, as far as what was going on in Gene Roddenberry's head, it was far more Star Trek. Uh, Oh, he may have said that. There were no killer fried eggs in Next Gen, was (laughs) there? <clears throat> or dropping on people's heads. Yeah. <laughs> There's
0: one thing about this episode I really didn't like, and that was oh. retconning the reason why the Doctor left Gallifrey. Hmm. He didn't know what the Daleks were in the Dead Planet. You know what? What did oh, he no, say? Because no, I think just, what he, he, he said didn't was I, that he
1: was scared of the Daleks. He hey? just said I was scared. Probably scared of his own people. He just said I was scared. So we don't know. Because why. of the
0: hybrid. And the hybrid, the legend of the hybrid, well, is it. that it's half... No, the legend of the hybrid is that it's half Dalek, half time Lord. Um The legend is actually, is,
1: is, from what they were saying, is the hybrid of two warrior races.
0: No, he says the legend. No, you're looking at the next time trailer for that. Mm. Well, the legend, or the bit at the right at the very end after he walks mm. out to mm. the surface of the Gallivary and his last thing he says before the end... Yeah. But earlier, he says the legend is that it's half Dalek, half Time Lord. And at the end, he corrects it. And he says it's not half Dalek. No Daleks would ever allow you to do that. It's two warrior races. But it, he has to say the truth.
1: Race. So he's saying the legend is. That is a truth, isn't it? If you say the legend is. If a story exists. This is a truth. The
0: truth. No, but the inference is that this is a truth that he's known since he left Gallifrey. This is the reason why he left Gallifrey. Not because I don't he was think bored. That's the
1: reason. He says he just says he's scared. He was scared because that could be
0: for any. Well, it's the inference. Is that the reason he leaves Gallifrey? Is because he's scared sure because he knows about the hybrid? An well, wh- whatever the reason, no, because he's talking about it. Okay.
1: Whatever the reason is, whether it's the Dalek thing or whatever, it it, it has changed because you know he says I didn't leave because I was bored. I left yeah. because I was scared.
0: Either way, he's reckoned it. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: and that's that is one of the things that happens and I think a lot of fans are going to have their arms up in the air again saying Stephen Moffat's changing I don't mind
0: it when he does things like listen where it's the hand under the bed. That's fine. That's just giving him an extra impetus. This isn't giving him an extra impetus. It's changing it. (laughs) He says, Simon, that he lied, doesn't he? He says, I've been lying all this time. And when... The character in the drama says, I've been lying for the last 52 years of television. (laughs) What he means is, the writer's come up with an idea. He's got no other way around. We'll
1: see, shall we? Well, uh, put it this way, it makes sense in my head. No, we won't see,
0: because he's changed it now. Hmm. Stephen Moffat. He's changed it. He's Well, unless the Doctor's lying about the fact that he was lying. Which is possible. And as Simon says, it could turn out that he found out about the hybrid afterwards, but no, the definite inference there was that he knew about the hybrid when he left.
1: Yes, but what I'm saying is that that, that legend or whatever it is of the hybrid, it, it's vague <laughs> enough that it's, it was about two warrior races, from what he was saying.
0: No, that was and, in the next time trailer. I
1: don't care. It's <laughs> It was... Um, the assumption was that it was the Daleks because they were the enemy of the Time Lords. The
0: assumption of the Time Lords... Yes. ...was that the hybrid was a hybrid of Dalek and Time Lord, right? Mm, yeah, okay. And so, if the Doctor left because he was afraid of the hybrid, then he left because he was afraid of something that was half Dalek, and that he therefore knew... Yeah.
1: Well, I, I thought that's what I heard, because I thought, no, that can't be right. But mate, I don't it, it can't be. I don't think it makes such an we'll, erroneous prevent error. Prevent me prove wrong, but... Well, it, it would make such an elementary. Well, I was just thinking, it's just like religions through the ages. Things they change according to whatever makes sense. So, from the point yeah, where uh, the Dalek uh, time lords became aware of the Daleks, they would think they would assume because they're the main, <clears throat> their nemesis, that, that that those are the two warrior races.
0: When it could actually be human. But the Doctor still left because he thought it was half Dalek.
1: No, he left because he was scared. Of? He didn't Whatever say, the hybrid... Uh, no, no, uh, it, it doesn't say what
0: he was scared of. He was scared because he was the one who had the knowledge about the hybrid.
1: Did they say... All oh, right, okay, I'll have to watch it again. I don't <clears> think that
0: was... <throat> the music was good. You no, know, this is all <laughs> inference. This is deliberate inference. This is put there to make you think this. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> You're... Definitely, desperately trying to bat it away, but that was the inference that was there to be drawn.
1: Oh, no, no, I'm going by the, well, yeah, inference or assumptions that I was making. It wasn't anything as defined as that.
0: Well, he says half Dalek, half Time Lord. That's not pretty defined.
1: That, but not in that sentence, was it? it was the no, he before. comes back to it. Yeah.
0: He comes back to it throughout the episode. Uh, this could be misdirection as
1: yeah. well. It has, it has to be. Well, like, it could look. be
0: misdirection, but the point I'm making is... Mm. He still on the reason he left Gallifrey. Yeah, no, I appreciate that.
1: I appreciate that.
0: And... And my reasons for
1: not reacting particularly harsh about it is that it it makes sense to a certain extent as to him leaving Gallifrey with his granddaughter. Makes more sense. It makes more sense in some respects, yeah. And also why they they were hiding from the Time Lords and why he was so upset when mm. they caught up with him.
0: mm. It does make sense. Mm. But, by the same token you can't have the rest of doctor who history it doesn't add up with that and i'm not saying that doctor who history should add up yeah because it never does but this is pretty fundamental stuff
1: going right back to the start yeah yeah i appreciate yeah. that yeah
0: this is this isn't just you know having seeing davros as a kid and having it be but The 12th we've had, Doctor who's got back that, I mean, we've this had could had be what
1: he, what he told his granddaughter. He could have told Susan this. He could have turned around to Susan and said, you know what, there's a big, we're going to go and travel. Mm. And never told her the reason why. There's a giant mutant star goat about to eat Gallifrey. Let's yeah. leave, yeah. <laughs> um, but this has been um, an interesting season of things like that. Like you say, we had this origin with, uh, with Davros, t- taking it right back to the beginning and seeing reasons why Davros became Davros. And it's like, whoa, you know. Do we really go there with this? But he, it, it was just written so brilliantly. I I think tonight what we saw, um, even with that you know, that that line about running away because he's scared it was just it was just brilliant from start to finish and ending with Gallifrey, which we presume is Gallifrey, must be. Um mm. Well, in case it's Gallifrey. another damn Caleb another yeah, bloody snow global Oh well goal.
0: here's a thing. It's turned out this week that Stephen Moffat was expecting to leave at the end of this series. Was he? Yeah. He was expecting this Christmas special to be his last episode of Doctor Who. Oh, didn't know that. Um, Well, I mean, I don't think he said outright that he was expecting to leave at the end of this series, but the inference in some other things that he said is that he was expecting to leave at the end of this series, and the Christmas special would be his last ever episode of Doctor Who. Well, what have I been saying is that he's going to leave on Gallifrey, isn't he? Hmm. Or, you know, Gallifrey will be the end of the series and if he does a Christmas special after that, you know, then that's one extra episode beyond Gallifrey. But he would rele- he would leave Doctor Who, restoring it back to where it was before Russell T. Davis came in.
2: Hmm.
0: He did, in the day of the Doctor... OK, the, the Stephen Moffat story is, he's come in after Russell T. Davis and he has... Looked at it, and from a wider perspective, instead of saying, right, I've got a series next year, and I'll tell a story there, and I've got a series a year after that, and I'll worry about what to story I'll tell there after I've finished telling the story this year, what he's done is he said, right, I'm not going to tell a story a year. I'm going to tell some stories. And however long they go for is however long they go for. And the first story he wanted to tell was going back to his character of River Song. And so he puts Amy and Rory in as the companions from the start of Series 5, knowing that they're going to be the parents of River Song, as we find out in Series 6. So already, that's one story that's taken two years to tell. And he throws in the silence, which turn up at the end of Series 5, but we don't see them. And then they turn up in Series 6, and they're the big bad in 6. And then at the end of 7, we see them again, just as a kind of... a. A full stop on their storyline. The same as we've had full stops on River Song's storyline. But River Song's story basically is series six. And the story of River Song's parents is basically series five. Now, a writer, knowing that he's got several years ahead of him, can put in defined points of where he's finishing stories, but has to adapt to circumstances. So the Amy Pond and Rory Williams story really was finished at the end of series six. But those two actors stayed on for another half a year. So you get half a series where he writes them out, even though their story is already finished. But what he does is then he uses that to tell the first element of the story of the impossible girl. Now, when he started, he was assuming he was going to be doing a series a year. But that didn't quite pan out, because in 2012 certain circumstances happened that caused there to be just one series across 12 and 13. So he didn't get a full series in 12 and 13, he just got one series split across two years. Because the story of The Impossible Girl should have been a whole series-long arc, possibly two years, I figure the way it would have happened is The River Song story would have been Series 6 in 2011. Amy and Rory would have left at the end of 2011. 2012 would have started with a new companion that would have been Clara. And she would have left at the end of The Name of the Doctor, which would have been Stephen Moffat's fourth series. She'd have had two full years before that arc, before that storyline worked its way out. Then it would have been free and clear to do the Mm -hmm. 50th anniversary special without a companion, before getting into the next story after that, which is the story he knew when he came in that the 50th anniversary special was going to be saving Gallifrey. And he knew that if he stayed on beyond that point, that his next story, which has taken two years, was going to be the story of how Gallifrey comes back. And presumably that's what we're watching next week. My point being, instead of telling a story a year, he's been essentially, more or less, telling stories in two series at a time. And that's what he's done again now. The Twelfth Doctor's come out of Day of the Doctor and Time of the Doctor, and we've had a two-year story arc, which has been building up to this. Anyway, Simon, did you enjoy it? I, I
1: mean, loved it. <clears throat> I would use extreme swear words.
0: Well, you could say adore. bloody.
1: Well, we, I bloody loved it.
0: You can say shitting if you like. <laughs> can I can shitting I say, loved it. Can I say... No. no. <laughs> There's only two words we want to have on this podcast. Yeah, what's that? Eric and... No, so three. We're... Oh.
1: <laughs> Simon. It's not me, is it? <laughs> uh, yeah, I absolutely adored it. I absolutely... I'm, I'm in awe of it. If I'm honest, I was going to say that uh, Stephen Steve Moffat is a writer... Yes, Uh, that's true. No, as a writer. Oh. Is three-dimensional as opposed to two-dimensional writers. But actually, no, there are two-dimensional writers. He's a four-dimensional writer. He's a four-dimensional writer. He really Mm. is. I'd say he's five dimensions. Why? I don't know. Just because it's one more than four. It's just (laughs) one-upmanship.
0: Four-dimensional, I mean, it's just... No, 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 no. Okay, let's break it down. Most people who write... Mm. And this is not a criticism, but, I mean, to actually get into people's heads ain't easy. Mm. Most people who write, and this is, I'm not talking about the Dickens and the Shakespeare's here. I'm talking about, you know, more run-of-the-mill writers who tell stories. They tell stories. And lots and lots and lots and lots of books out there with good stories in. Mm. But that you don't really get into the characters' heads. No. Famous Five, bloody good books. Absolutely brilliant at what they do. But you can't honestly say when you read a Famous Five book that you're feeling every single thing that George feels. No, no, and and it's only existing for the time you're reading it. So that's a two-dimensional story. Yeah. A story that, you know, tells something that's worth telling and is perfectly satisfying in that respect, but doesn't go that extra distance that puts you inside somebody's head. Mm. Whereas the Dickens and the Shakespeare's and the rest of it would tell a bloody good story and put you inside somebody's head. And then Stephen Moffat would tell a bloody good story, put you inside somebody's head, and then tell it out of sequence. Yeah, or... and then, and rewire your brain in the process. Yeah. I was, I... That's where he's going with four dimensions, Lee. If you want to add to that, give me a fifth dimension.
1: <laughs> well... <Whoa. laughs> <laughs> Yeah, do you know what this was interesting? Because we got to see the doctor not only talking to himself, which is um, I love that when he talking does that.
0: to the ghost of Clara, isn't yeah, he? But
1: he, we get to see him inside his head talking to himself. The cynics will his say head. he's just doing a Sherlock home. but it wasn't. It was more than that. It was well, more than a mind. A, it was more than a mind palace. It was his his way of thinking things out, mm. his way of sorting
0: stuff out. We get he did to see do a that. mind palace bit. Yes, yes, and of course we saw all the Tardis bits, which were essentially that.
1: Yes, but it's it's the Doctor's way, the Doctor Who's way of, of telling that same idea, or Stephen Moffat telling that same idea. But um,
0: a it's, now. A bit like, awesome. uh, it's a bit like um, having the Famous Five and the Secret Seven. Why do you need the Secret Seven if you've already got the Famous Five? But they're both excellent. There was yeah. an interesting moment when you walked past the camera and looked at the camera,
1: both the four four, just once. Mm. And I thought that was significant. Oh, he was just looking at you. We didn't. Know, we didn't but see it me. wasn't. At it was just all. <laughs> making sure you were watching. It wasn't significant,
0: was it? It was just making sure you were paying attention.
1: And then we had the kind of uh, the CCTV security looking, you know, at the doctor again, similar to the old Sandman thing. I thinking, oh all right, so we've got a link here. That was a bit confusing, but obviously it had nothing to do with that whatsoever. There well, were there were lots the nice elements. <clears> because we had a you know, there's a. There's this wonderful castle in it that had a very historical kind was of feel the to it. There's lots of bits of this series in it. It
0: was the Doctor's own personal nightmare. Mm. Yeah.
1: Oh, so, uh, No, Roman no, Ghost.
0: Lee, you've just said it and completely missed it. What? There were lots of things from this series you've just said. Yeah, I was just thematically looking at it as Gormungast. It was the Edwards. Doctor's own personal nightmare. Yes. So all the things that he's recently feared are going to turn up in his personal mm-hmm. nightmare. Well, there you go, hmm. chronologically speaking, though,
1: with the confession dial, we see May and me with it in her hand, and then the doctor now has it on Gallifrey. So, am, am I missing something, or is this going to be revealed that the confession dial and
0: you know, he wh- was in the confession dial? Yeah,
1: so if he was in it, if, okay, she's just got to deliver it to the Time Lords. Is that what it is? So, he has been transported and made tiny, into the confession dial in Mare's hands, Mare Mee's hands. Basically, it's
0: a version of the Matrix, isn't it? So where does Same that as confession the confession dial, because yeah.
1: she's got it, so how does that end up on Gallifrey?
0: Oh, you didn't. Oh, I've missed something. Did you do fingers and ears at the end?
1: Yeah. Okay. Is it really obvious then?
0: Yeah. All right, okay. <laughs> That's all right then. But it doesn't explain, it's a TV thing, isn't it? It doesn't explain why it's in the middle of the desert with him. No, that that, that was just an exit point, though, wasn't it? A
1: dimensional exit point. There was, Mm.
0: at the end of Death in Heaven last year, there were people saying, all these people who were saved into the nether sphere, and this boy gets to come back, right? But it's only his soul that's been saved into the nether sphere. How come he comes back as a living, breathing person with a body? Yeah. It's a Stephen Moffat thing. It's If you want to hand-wave it away scientifically, you say there are... It's just energy transfer. ...atoms in the air, mm. and whatever process is taking place that returns the boy takes atoms out of the air and rebuilds a new body for him. Mm. If you want to give it some hand-wavy scientific explanation. But the fact is, this is what Stephen Moffat does. It's how he did silence in the library. All those people in the library get saved into the database and then at the end, they reappear as actual people. And actually...
1: In the database.
0: Stephen Moffat addressed one of my biggest problems with science fiction in general this week. And one of my biggest problems with sci-fi stuff has always been matter transmitters, transmats. Mm. Because if you're going to take a person from one end, pull them apart atom by atom, mm. and then reassemble a person at the other end out of atoms taken from the air or yeah. whatever, like TV they're stuff. at the other end, <laughs> then you've killed the person at one end, and the person at the, the other is the a new person. Say
1: if you ever did it's it as to whether the soul would travel with a person, or was it a new person at the other end? Well, no. But, but what yeah. where he addressed that was the fact that he used the energy of his own body to recreate a body so it was the same energy
0: it's like Stephen Moffat saying this is something that's been a stupid thing that doesn't make any sense in (laughs) sci-fi for ages so let's just have it be a stupid thing scientifically you'd need a hard drive the
1: size of a planet I think to hold the, the amount of information That's what they said in 1940 about computers holding information. Well, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. (laughs) They found some kind of algorithm by which to store the data, but...
0: But then the other question is, if you're transmitting somebody, do you actually send the atoms?
1: Yeah. We haven't done it yet, so we don't know, do we?
0: Well, this is the point. Philosophically, it's a weird kind of, you know, very, very weird idea, really. Because even if you do send the actual atoms, you've still torn that person apart at one end.
1: Yeah, yeah, you literally, to say, in order to do it, you literally need to destroy the person, disintegrate them in order to, to move them.
0: But mm. then, like Simon says, how many atoms made up, make up a human body? And you've got to reassemble those atoms all in the exact place they were if you're actually going to send the atoms. And to send the atoms, that doesn't
1: sound big to me. When you talk about megabytes and and you know gigabytes and terabytes and how far we've come just with information <clears throat> in the size of a chip, which is as big as your finger now. So you know, just humans alone have managed to uh, expand the technological world ridiculously f- far forward. And also, this is Lee
0: who wants the sci-fi to work.
1: <laughs> no, it's just that sometimes things can work in sci-fi if you just apply a little bit of. Logic. Trans-man. Talking never. about spirits and souls, you know, please, that's not going to help. Well, anybody. that's
0: basically sci-fi's version of spirits and souls. It's transmat. Well, it it's something that somebody's thought up in their head, and it's kind of got adapted into general sci-fi thinking mm-hmm. that one day there'll be transmat. No, there'll never be transmat. Just like there'll never be time travel. It's just unless they can do something like store a person no 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 because it still won't be the same person
1: well it depends depends whether they convert the energy in your body to something and then back out again almost like withdrawing you know like uh dried quantum physics you need to look into it dried food and then you just add water at the other end that kind of thing but yeah But no, it's this idea that you step into a transporter, you step into the transporter, do you at that point die? And then another copy of you, which isn't you, is created, who believes they're still you.
0: Well, even if you try to put the atoms together again at the other end, it's like you're way beyond Frankenstein territory here. Mm. You're talking about taking a person apart, atom by atom. And yet, even though all these atoms, billions of atoms, have been entirely separated from each other, you're talking about then... Keeping that person alive while you send those atoms one at a time through some wormhole to the other end of a matter transmitter—it ain't going to
1: happen, is it? And you know, firstly, if I'm going to have that done, I don't want any flies in my cubicle for a start—that'd be a nightmare. And you've got to make sure you take all your clothes off,
0: otherwise you might end up with a belt buckle in your gizzard. You'll be rebuilt. There's a bit in the motion picture
1: in there where there's a. Matter a uh, transporter accident. It's quite yeah. horrible. Oh really? What happens? They come at the other end of just a bubbling, steaming oh, yeah, pile flash. That was great. Yeah. That was quite. I think it was quite censored. I think quite edited. It's <laughs>
0: pretty good there. But this is, you know, I don't know why we've gone so far down this road. But this, all it would take is one tiny, tiny mistake in the system, one atom out of place, and the person who turned up at the other end would be dead.
1: You've only got to bugger up the DNA and you Mm. that's it.
2: Mm.
0: Now, the whole thing is just, it's fantasy. Mm. Mm. But it's become adopted into the sci-fi thing. And this is the thing with Stephen Moffat. He takes these things, time travel, matter transmitters, and he says, right, it's ridiculous. Mm. So let's puncture the sort of pomposity of it. In The Lodger... At the end of The Lodger, and this is a Gareth Roberts script, but he does a such a typical Stephen Moffat joke. At the end of The Lodger, the Doctor goes back and puts the card in the window the day before he finds the card, telling him to go and lodge with Craig. Mm. Which means that if the Doctor hadn't successfully navigated that story, he could never have left the card there in order to go back to the... Yeah. Again, Yeah. Mm. But the thing is, time travel can't happen. So Stephen Moffat's looking at it and saying, it's silly. So if you put a silly joke in oh, yeah. about him leaving a card, mm. and the people who get a bug up their ass about it are the ones who'd like to say, oh no, time travel will be possible one day.
1: Mm. That's one way in which you can give Star Wars fans credit, isn't it? Because they're wrapping arms over midi-chlorians and trying to explain the Force. It's just <clears throat> It just happens. It's just, It's just Flash Gordon. It just happens. Why does that gun kind of work? It just it just does.
0: I don't mind the midi midi-chlor- midi thing so much though because, mm. well, he said right the Force is these midi but the midi clorians is still just as much fantasy as the force yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. So it's just an extra level of fantasy. Mm.
2: Mm.
0: <clears throat> <clears throat> if he'd <throat> try tried to explain it, you know, properly scientifically, I think, yeah, I, I think that's where he that shot himself in that the foot. Didn't need explaining. No, it didn't. But yeah. if you're going to explain it. I think there are way worse ways you could have done it. Mm. Probably
1: mm. Could do top trumps for midi Council counts and what.
0: <clears throat> you both loved that, then, right? I
1: did actually really like it. It's almost one of those episodes where you get so lost in how great everything is about it, every aspect of it, that you forget that actually, it's, what was the point of it? In a way, I didn't want to talk about it. It's almost afterwards. You could almost go from face the raven. To to the next week's episode. Yeah, yeah. And oh, you absolutely good. Nothing's, nothing's happened, but but I'm so glad it's been made because it's just a great, it's a great thing to watch. It's a great enjoyable piece. It would it would have made a fantastic book. Of oh, sorts. well, it occurred to me, and I think you touched on it earlier, JR, when you were sort of saying, I don't know if you did it on the podcast, whether it was just something you said. But it, it was like something which shouldn't appear on screen, so it could have been. A, like a short trip story or it could have been possibly one of the weirder 70s annual stories mm. yet again annual stories um something which <sighs> i don't know as you say i mean there was a grandiose feel to it it's quite classical in its feel wasn't mm. it and the music it was, it was very, very poetic. poetic music was like mozart's um you know uh, what what's that don giovanni it's like if you've seen amadeus the you see at the end of it when stunning. the when the kind of yeah
0: you know, big, oh this is straight out of the fountain the moment of death coming towards the you this is fountain I ends. haven't seen it yeah but um,
1: just... it felt like that moment where Mozart's confronted by is uh, uh, the ghost of his father Hamlet <clears> was in there as well with a skull on top of the ramparts all this sort of stuff mm. it was it just threw all of these wonderful elements in. it's beautiful and it's it's, it's W- WTF. You know, I think a lot of people are gonna look at it and go, What the hell was that all oh, about? No, I thought what it and... made more sense than Oh no it does. It does. Sandman. I'm not gonna worry about if people don't get it. I know that people won't get it. And but rewatch it. In fact you get you get it you get to rewatch it six or seven times at the end. You get it. In fact the entire point apart from getting confessions out of him for his confession doll finally it seems to be, you know, all, all it is leading to is one point, which is him smashing this wall with his fist. Well, that's what he makes of billion, it, isn't it? Years. Yeah. The idea of the confession, yeah, Darl, is, is that well.
0: he gets trapped. This is the same idea, essentially, because Stephen Moffat does this. If he has one idea, he'll say, Yeah, that's interesting, but I could have done something else with it. And then he just does the other thing. So at the end of um, the 11th Doctor's Life, when you get to Trenzalore, and you get the giant TARDIS because the dimensions have broken down. And the Doctor's grave is actually, rather than a body in a box, is actually the Doctor's timeline. So this, essentially, the confession dial is doing that from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. So, and the confession dial is supposed to be somewhere where you trap the Doctor inside. Or, you know, or whoever it is, you trap them inside and they exist there for an eternity. And so if using it the way the Time Lords were trying to use it to find out about the hybrid, where it is and what it is. And so, yes, for them, it's just this eternal torture chamber. Their assumption is that at some point during eternity, Doctor eventually will surrender and reveal. But instead, he works out how to escape. And of course, as soon as you see the word home on the thing, and he says, oh, the TARDIS, and you're thinking, no, not the TARDIS, mm. it's Gallifrey. <laughs>
1: that's what I thought immediately before he said TARDIS.
0: Yes, exactly, that's yeah. what I, and, oh, Simon, did you? No, or did you think TARDIS? Uh,
1: no, when he said TARDIS, I thought, well, that doesn't sound right. I mm. did think Gallifrey at one point, and then it went out of my head again, because it kind of... And I was trying to work out what was going on again.
0: Why well, did spend the whole episode thinking he was in the confession dial? <laughs> did you? <laughs> well, yeah. Mate, yeah, when there was confessions involved, I should have twigged. Well, even before that, I just assumed that's where he was right from the very start. Mm. So when it said home, I never for a second thought, oh, that's going to be the Tardis, because I thought well, the Tardis isn't in the confession dial with him. What are you talking? <clears throat> yeah, it was. It was
1: great. It was. It's was well layered, wasn't it? You, you started straight away with a mystery kind of knew he was going to be on his own for this episode. Or at least on his own with this strange creature. For the rest of it, I didn't think anybody else would turn up. So there was a bit of a shock in the back of Clara in his brain, but that was, that was <laughs> fine. So you had that very initial mystery, which he's talking out loud to you, and you're following him, and the
0: atmosphere's great. And of course, then it gets just before you go on, nobody else was there, because that creature, it was just there was nothing there. It was just empty, wasn't it? Yeah, which is anyway, great.
1: So it was just him. So it was just him, <laughs> Um, and then obviously you get more of this 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 plot line. You get you get to find, but there's more kind of clues cropping up, bird and all that sort of stuff. And you know you see his hand. Right, I love the, the Stephen Moffat again. it shows thing. you everything in the opening scenes, which you then f- promptly forget, and then realise that that's an incredibly important part because he he brings it back in at the end. Well, it's he always the, does the that. So I was looking, I was thinking, who's that hand? Why is it so important? It was the bloody doctors <laughs> I didn't get it we burning up. There were two
0: leaps of faith you needed to make here that weren't really Just there two. to be made. <laughs> One being bird. That's the clue the doctor gives himself to tell him that the bird's pecking away at the diamond mountain for eternity. That's a bit of a leap. That's a real <laughs> stretch. But fair enough. But then the other loop But that might be something that, he knows himself, he understands. Well, that, yeah, but we... Uh, it's not something that's come out of... It's not like the homily from John Pertwee about no. sitting on the mountain with the daisiest daisy, which then comes back in Planet of the Spiders or whatever it is. Mm. You know, the thing about the bird, if we'd have had that story two years ago... Yes. Mm. When we saw the clue bird, we could have said, Ah. Yeah, because I immediately thought Raven. Exactly. You yes. yes. just had a story about. with a bird in the title. I
1: was thinking maybe it's like B-I-R-D, standing for something, so I was racking my brains.
0: Well, I thought it was John Bird, and I was trying to work out how you was going to get in there. The other leap of faith <laughs> was that it takes Time Lords days to die, and nobody knows this. I mean, yeah... Because every cell is straining to regenerate, even after all the regenerations have gone.
1: Yeah, but we do know it takes ages after David Tennant's exit, don't we?
0: But we've also seen that this is the first regeneration of a new cycle. So the Doctor... I mean, as far as the watching audience is concerned, if the Doctor was being killed there, he would regenerate. There's no reason to think he wouldn't. And so, and there's certainly no reason to think that having not regenerated, he's got another day and a half to climb to the top of the tower. So putting that in there, again, is a leap of faith that you're making on the viewer's mm. behalf, mm. rather than giving them the information. It's like, this is the problem I had with the Toby Whithouse story, is that the doctor was there working things out, but you couldn't work the things out along with him because you weren't given the explanations no. in advance. No. You were only given them... When he arrived at them. Yeah. You
1: you almost really just don't need that speech about the day and a half. You just need to see him crawling. <clears throat> yeah, you and, could have done him, it without the speech. Yeah, and him just kind of going through things in his brain or or maybe, yeah. yeah just, just going the, over. The
0: voiceover could have been, and here I am at the moment of death, but I won't let myself die because yeah. there's one more thing I've got to do. Hmm. You know, you didn't need to have all that it's stuff. It's taken
1: there. me a day and a half to get to yeah. this room. Yeah. Or something like that, yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, you could have had that. I mean, so, so dear Stephen, yeah, so that, <laughs> this that line here <laughs> that was kind of irrelevant and kind of spoiled it, and the other thing was pretty relevant and kind of spoiled it. And for that reason, I don't think it was, you know, I don't think it was anything like a perfect episode of Doctor Who. I don't think it quite worked, if I'm going to be completely honest. I think it did what it did really well. And I think the music and the editing disguised it at the end. Mm. So you got swept up in it. But actually, Wait. I think there's a pretty fundamental flaw at the end. It there. been... means the episode doesn't work as well as listened
1: in. No, it? exactly. But there, there's a, you know, if the Sandman episode had the same kind of
0: visual and aural.
1: Yeah, exactly. If it swept me up in it the same as this one had. Maybe you would be giving the other one a slightly higher mark.
0: This was... Uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't as swept up in this as you two were by any stretch of the imagination. I thought this would be
1: right up your street. You love all these kind of philosophical, psychological, getting into yeah. the doctor's brain yeah, stories. You you write, write stories. You write stories like bloody, this. Yeah, you write oh, no. them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, JR,
0: can you write a story for our book? Yeah, what's the concept of the book? Right, now how can I mess around with (laughs) that? Exactly. Somebody asked me the other day to go on his podcast and just record like a three-minute segment. And he was going to ask lots of podcasters to do this and just record a three-minute segment. And the question was, um, what's your guilty pleasure, Doctor Who? (laughs) So I said, well, do you mind if I actually do the opposite? (laughs) (laughs) So I sent him... I sent him a three-minute audio file doing the exact opposite of what he asked me to do. You're a bad boy. It's just the way my mind works. But yes, because <laughs> that's the way my mind works, that's not necessarily always the way I like I other people's minds to work. No, because you if know. your mind works at a metatextual level, if somebody else is doing something metatextual, they're going to be doing a different metatextual thing than you would have mm. and so the two don't quite sit together mm. Mm. so something like this uh, you, you know from an intellectual level brilliant but from an emotional level you know is catching all the wrong beats so it doesn't doesn't really work on those both both of those two levels for me mm. so I'm kind of I'm kind he's, of he's getting a bit uh,
1: obsessed with death though isn't he and, and all its philosophical trimmings. You know, we we had quite a speech from Capaldi about, you know, people stay dead. Well, and you get that moment where you're me. really busy when they first die and then over the over the weeks and they and they stay dead, that's when it's really hard. And it's thinking, Well, this this is this is quite deep stuff and almost it strikes irrelevant.
0: me Stephen Moffat's telling the story that he was expecting to tell, thinking that this Doctor would perhaps be the last Doctor in a regeneration cycle rather than the first one in the next. Mm -hmm. Because that's what... I mean, last year, I think he disguised it really well, because like I say, last year felt to me like a Doctor who's having philosophical issues with being alive. Mm -hmm. But this year, instead of being over that and... You know whole new regeneration cycle in front of him and this should be a doctor who's filled with the joie de vivre of yes. knowing that he's got a whole new life cycle but instead yeah like you say increasingly over the last few weeks we've started to see I think it started with the woman who lived or the very end of the girl who died mm. we're starting to see a doctor who's having issues with death again and it did. The way the series started did start with that, but at the mm. time, it felt like lip service rather Again, than anything. Again, it comes back
1: to this idea mm. of him and Clara having the glory years. You know, I don't want him we to. We never be. saw
0: it. No, <clears throat> too much
1: dwelling. Um, yeah, yeah.
0: I rewatched a bunch kind of, of, of episodes this week, and the start of Face the Raven, where they burst into the TARDIS having just finished an adventure, and it just feels so
1: contrived.
0: Yeah. Mm. Because it, that bit does for mm. sure, yeah. and it's just you can't keep telling us about the things that we need to be seeing.
1: Mm. Mm. I just well, on that I rewatched Face the Raven, um, and I have to say I enjoyed it a lot more than uh, than the first viewing. I enjoyed it the first time. Yeah, I think I had a problem uh, initially with all the kind of the themes of what was going on. You know, I kept mentioning Neverwhere and the Diagon Alley thing and the kind of magical aspect, which I love. I love all that, but not necessarily in Doctor Who. And I was thinking, why this and why that street? And I think we overanalyse it on our first viewings a lot of the time, which is why we're here. But the second time around, I thought I'm going to just watch it and enjoy it and not think too hard. And I came away and I actually teared up with, um, with that speech with Capaldi and Coleman. I thought it was great. Mm-hmm. Really good. And actually, the pace was fine. Yeah, Myster- I thought it was, the mystery was, was fine. It's, it's, it's clunky still, and a few clumsy moments in it. And I still can't get my head around the fact that Torch would, ne- would never know about this street.
0: And it still doesn't make any sense whatsoever no, that but when I the doctor finds the... out aliens are involved, he goes looking for a disappearing yeah, street. I
1: know. I know. But it was, it was just the ride was more enjoyable the second time around. Yeah, it was
0: that, the, the last 10 minutes are more than make up for a lot of the problems that are earlier in the episode. This is why I scored it a seven, because I think it does a really good job at the end of the day, Mm. but getting there, it jumps through a few hoops that aren't Mm. really there to be jumped through. And she, Mm. Well, we'll talk about that later, because we have an email about that. Mm. Uh, I don't know. What else have we got from this week's episode?
1: Oh, well. I mean, there, it's funny, isn't it? There wasn't a lot in there, apart from the fact that you had. A te- it was a test. It's difficult round. one to talk about like because it's
0: one person doing one thing.
1: Yeah, but I suppose you know when you look at films like Cube, remember that one?
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, and Dark City. It's Dark City. Dark City. C- Dark City. D- that's it.
1: That's the one I was trying to think. Of. I was right on the edge of my brain. Yeah, of mm. course it was. Mm. But you know, I was. I'm glad he's he's thrown this in and done it so well. It just looked fantastic. I, was I think totally thrown it's into one of it. those episodes which is a personal experience that, that yeah. people take different things from it. I'm not yeah. saying the story meant different things. I'm just saying that as it washes over you, you know, Joe, you, you're saying that it, we were, got caught up in it, yeah, because it kind of appeals to a certain sensibility, I guess. And I'm I'm prepared to be carried away by stuff like that. That's why I love films like Donnie mm. Darko because they do have. A certain amount of ambiguity even if somebody at the other end tries explains it doesn't stop it having that same effect and there's almost that transitional thing where you feel like you've gone through an experience with it from one end to the other you've gone through the experience with the doctor why i like books like *Neverending story you know that um that that take you on a journey that affects you in the same way mm-hmm. Where you feel slightly different afterwards.
0: Oh, shut up, you soppy sod. I am a soppy sod, not <laughs> <clears throat> It is an exceptional episode of <laughs> Doctor Who. Yeah. And one of the best things about it is... Go back to Donna Noble and David Tennant in the TARDIS in Series 4. Mm. Week in, week out, you knew exactly what was going to happen. You knew exactly what emotional beats you'd get. You knew exactly, almost to the second how many minutes the scene in the TARDIS at the end, the sort of 90210 moment would last for, mm. as you get the emotional beats after the story's finished. All these things were so predict- On a Stephen Moffat, from one week to the next, you never know what you're going to get. And even halfway through the episode sometimes, you don't know where it's going to go. No. It's so unpredictable.
1: Now, kind of the most uh, extreme episode probably of the RTD era was
0: Love and Monsters. Mm, I was going to say, this is for... That's exactly the illusion I was going to make, actually. Mm. Rusty Davis, very predictable. And if Rusty Davis throws something unpredictable into the mix, like Love and Monsters or Mm. Midnight, Mm. it really sticks out because of that. Now, what do you do if you're the guy who every week is doing Love and Monsters and Midnight? You have to throw something incredibly unpredictable <laughs> into the mix to stand out in the way this sounds. Do you know what I was going to say? That I, I much... So, uh, yes. To be honest, yeah. The ultimate point is, this is Stephen Moffat's Love and Monsters on Midnight. Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I prefer season eight in general to this season. But it's mm. far more consistent. Um, But there's no way on earth this episode could have sat in the same season as Listen.
0: No, no. I just think it would have been... Well, like it would have been... Two main
1: courses, really. It been, it been quite jarring, I
0: think. Well, this and... was Listen Again, yeah. basically. Yeah. Testing. Sorry?
1: I think it tests the audience quite...
0: Mm. I don't think this adds up as much as Listen did.
1: Oh, no, no, no.
0: So, yeah. I think this is... That's, the thing that this episode's got going for it is that it is just Peter Capaldi. Hmm. If this had a cast in the same way as Listen did then you'd think this was a big disappointment after that. But because it's just Capaldi, that kind of makes up for the flaws in the story. You said test... No, sorry. I was just going to say, so the things that need forgiving, you forgive because you've got Peter Capaldi doing what he did. Mm. I mean, this is... there's When you make something, a television programme, and you've only got X amount of budget and X amount of time, to write it as well as to film it, you know compromises have to be made and as a good producer or showrunner or writer whatever you know uh, half of your job is saying right if i've got to make a compromise there how do i offset that compromise and what do i put in in its place and to and this episode is like a gift to peter capaldi as an actor Mm. and it's a gift to the audience because regardless of what you think of the story it's 55 minutes of peter capaldi Doing his Peter Capaldi thing. And whether you like the story or not, you can just watch him for 55 minutes and revel in his performance. Mm. And that is Stephen Moffat offsetting the fact that he knows, as a writer, that he's basically doing the same thing. as you going to write a story like that again? and make it watertight, though?
1: You're not going to do it. Well, you know, I know we did with listen, but then that was the, there was there was two sides to listen. There you only know, a it couple of small another, flaws it? there,
0: really. Yeah, yeah. And then all the mention of the hybrid that could have waited till next week. You know, we knew they were after something. We didn't need to know what it was they were after. We just needed to know that they were after something. mm Hmm. Hmm. Testing. Sorry, testing.
1: I mean, you know, the, the doctor's being tested, is he? Or uh, No, I was the saying point. testing as far well as the audience are being tested. Oh, right. See how far you can push them.
0: Yeah, and same two weeks ago with found footage that wasn't really found footage, but we call it found mm. footage because that was the form that they were trying that to was, do. That them. was playing, that was a bit of a... It's playing with the audience, though. It's playing with their expectations of what Doctor Who's supposed to be.
1: Yeah, but that's something familiar to the audience, isn't it? You know, found footage is is, is, this pla- is it's just doing a genre. is familiar to an
0: audience, <sighs> is it? Yeah, this is, this is the vagina monologues and Grumpy Old Man. You don't have to have seen it. Done in a drama series, the same as this. This is Doc Cotton in EastEnders. It doesn't matter where you've seen it, there will always be things on television where it's just one person talking to camera. But yeah, 15 a certain and element of the minutes. last
1: sort of 10 minutes of 2001
0: to it, though, as well. It was quite um, surreal. The in last places. five and 10 minutes were, mm. but again, he explained it well enough that you could see what was going on, so it wasn't mm. confusing, or it shouldn't have been confusing. Mm-hmm. The bit where he starts, when he first punched that wall of whatever it was he said it was. Mm. And I thought, what the hell? You've just said that this is 10 feet thick or whatever it was he said. 20 feet thick or something, 2 feet mm. thick. And it's 40 times as hard as diamond or whatever it was he said. And I, he punched it and I thought, what it's not gonna, that's not going to happen. <laughs> you. How many times are you going to punch it? It's 40 times as strong as diamond. Yeah. And then then halfway halfway
1: through, when you see there's a little bit of uh,
0: an arc. No, 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 no. As soon as he comes back down and you've seen all those skulls Mm. and the instant he did that, I thought, oh, that's where he's taking it. Mm. And yeah, okay. If you didn't get it until like another few seconds after that, Mm. when you saw Mm. an indentation starting to appear Mm. or whatever, but all you needed to do and they... And they played it over and over so many times mm. that anybody who was lagging behind knew where it was going by the time it got to the end of it. Yeah. But is
1: this true? I know, look, we not back to science again. But if you were going to punch a wall that hard a million times with your hand, don't forget, you know, our hands are softer than the wall.
0: But don't forget, he only punches it like two or three times with each body. Yes. And then he's got a brand new hand the next time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I thought you were going down there. No, you I'm just talking about break. the energy
1: Energy coming from a very soft, <laughs> this is spongy a hand. It just suddenly occurred to me. Obviously, the moment he replaced the clothes and everything like that, I knew, oh, right, there's some kind of time loop going on here, or he's mm. leaving the clothes for himself. Mm. But surely at some point he would have walked off naked.
0: Yeah, and at some point he walked in. Yes, exactly, and then no clothes there. That's Stephen Moffat playing with the audience again. Mm. It's like in The Big Bang, where... Um, how does the doctor get out of the Pandorica? He comes back from the future and gives Rory the key.
1: Why would he walk off naked?
0: Because there's only one set of clothes. Yeah. He's picking up the set of clothes. First that time he, he arrived there, himself. he would have gone in
1: the water and got out wet, and then put his clothes in front of the thing. Then probably oh, would have put them mean. back on again, so they wouldn't <laughs> have been there for the next person. No, don't do that to my brain. <laughs>
0: Is Stephen Moffat having a little fun. I know, uh, yeah, no, I think the, it's lovely. Yeah. I yeah.
1: really do think it's lovely. And I did think about the... Um...
0: Well, the first time I saw Big Bang and yeah. I saw the Doctor come back and give Rory the key from the future or the Sonic or whatever it was, I thought, no, that's... I hated that. I thought, no, you're taking a piss. You're I mean, taking a piss out it's... of the audience here. And then it struck me, yeah, he's taking a piss out of the audience. <laughs> and I thought, how effing brilliant is that? Yeah. <laughs> because all it would have taken was for Rory to work out, it's a prison, it's locked on the inside, but not on the outside. You know, you take a key to the prison door on the outside, and it opens. All it would have taken was for Rory to work that out. How much duller would that have been than the Doctor comes back from the future with her fez on, carrying a mop, and gives him the key, or the sonic screwdriver, or whatever. It reminds it says, me open of the door, my, you
1: adult. my favourite joke. On Jigsaw, do you remember the old kids' program Jigsaw with Sylvester McCoy and David Rappaport, where they played the Omen, and there was that brilliant joke oh, where, yeah. <laughs> where there was um, oh, there was a, there was a, uh, an emergency siren or something like that, but the hammer was next to the siren in a case on the wall with a glass door but you had to smash the glass in order to get hold of the siren, but the hammer was inside, so they run up to it, open the door, take the hammer out, close the door,
0: smash the glass, yeah. open the door, put the hammer back, close the door, <laughs> exactly. reach through and get the... Just brilliant. That's what it is. Yeah. That's 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 time travel paradox version of the exact same joke. Yeah. And the brilliant thing about the joke is, and the brilliant thing about the paradox is, it doesn't need to be there, it works without it. But putting it there gives it that extra level of whatever, comedy or surprise, whatever. Because mm. Rory could have opened that door on the Pandorica from the outside. He didn't need the doctor to give him the key, whatever. Mm. But the doctor giving him the key is just Stephen Moffat sticking two fingers up at the <laughs> behind-the-ears fans. Oh, yeah, and all thing. the
1: voices will come out. Oh,
0: his ego's got... It's not ego at all, it's just... It's fun, it's somebody taking something that could be stale, 50 year old television programme and saying it doesn't need to be stale. Do you know what,
1: rewinding to that point you said about the retconning as well, it's just like, you know, if this was a two year old programme or a five year old programme or the point at which um, Barry Letts came up with all the Time Lord history and all that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. you know, were people up in arms then?
0: They not probably would have been if there had been an internet, do think, yeah. Does it
1: make any difference with this five-year-old programme or a 50-year-old programme? They were up in program? arms
0: by the time of the Deadly Assassin. Okay. And that's when fandom first organised itself. Twice. So, yeah, they'd have been up in arms. Um, it is. But <laughs> there are always going to be people who are up in arms. If you're... See, this is the thing. When I first saw the Big Bang, I was up in arms. And I am so glad I'm not that person anymore. Really? Yeah. In what respect were you up in arms? About the Doctor coming back from the future to oh, let really? himself out of the prison. Yeah. I thought, no, you can't do that. Yeah, and I was... you've, you've got a son now. You've chilled out. Yeah, I chilled out long <laughs> before <laughs> that. <then. laughs> you've got your priorities
1: sorted out. That wasn't, that wasn't the problem with that episode. The problem was the dimensions in time, wasn't it? That moment. <laughs>
0: your face. I don't know what you're talking about.
1: The dimensions in time, you know, where all the creatures all turn up at the same time. That was the Pandora opens. Yeah. Is that the I,
0: same episode? No. Well, I'm talking yeah, about the second bang. Big bang.
1: Half. Well, big bang. Yeah. So it's two stories. It's the same thing, isn't it? Same adventure. Same okay, story. but why was that a problem? Because I just couldn't believe it as um, a long term fan, as a viewer of a program whereby you have so many alien races that over the fifty years have been shown to be um, totally antagonists. To yeah, killers or whatever. I just cannot just believe look at Earth you history, read too much though. Tolkien. No, but look, at the, Dar- look yeah. at the Look at the Daleks. Look at, at Earth Daleks. wouldn't have a hybrid. They wouldn't have a hybrid. They wouldn't do this. They wouldn't do that. They hate everything. Yeah. You know, it's just, they'd never work with anybody. They'd never would work they never work with anybody. Robo from, Men, Mavic no. Chen. Yeah, but they're Oscar the slaves. Deals. The Master. They're the
0: slaves. The Master wasn't. No. Mavic Chen wasn't.
1: The Jarvins in Spain. No, I, I can't deal with that.
0: Look at Earth history. How many it was, times it was? It was literally uh. thrown
1: together potch of you know, you know the anything about was in there. As if the, First
0: World War started.
1: They got went to this costume club
0: and went, what have we got?
1: Well, let's use all those.
0: Yeah they did, and that's fair enough. But okay, Doctor so Who that, was made on that, a very much reduced budget. That was blind Why the would office. a Cyberman say excellent?
1: Why would he even react?
0: But the point is No the no I'm story... not that much of a fan. But
1: all I'm saying is <laughs> that the that particular moment just still it, it was we watched Dimensions in Time. We had those people in East EastEnders. We had all those monsters in Enders together, right? And to me, that was just like exactly the same thing, and there was no reason to show them all in the same room together. In spaceships, we're fine. On visual kind of... Screens fine, but all in it's the same television.
0: Room. You've got to put them in the same room together. Imagine if you'd have been six when you saw that. And last yes, week, the week before, we had all exactly the world right. leaders
1: sitting in a room, all talking to each other, because there was a common threat that they needed to talk, talk about. Well, that's the theory, yes. anyway. Yes, this I understand is, is, the, start, I that's the, the concept. concept. I just didn't like the, yeah. the image on the screen when I was watching. I just thought silly. It always will be for me.
0: That's because dimensions in time was rubbish. But that wasn't the rubbish thing about Dimensions in Time.
1: No, everything else was.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, some of the costumes were a bit ropey, but. <laughs>
1: the Tetrap. That's oh, my favourite bit is the Tetrap sticking out the window, going, eh, eh, like some really bad. Um, uh, thing. Blackpool. <laughs> yeah, motorised thing. Brilliant. What are we talking about? Don't know. Bring back the Rani.
0: <sighs> right, let's change the subject gone and any other any other things we should bring up
1: yeah it suddenly occurred to me that um you could have well, there's a certain amount of doctors you could have replaced peter capaldi with in that
0: one i think mm. certainly tom baker mm. what you mean of the uh i was gonna say 11 is it 11 no it's 12 with john hurt yeah. other doctors who could have done this yeah
1: yeah i think yeah Tom Baker would have been quite interesting. John Hurt could have done it. But then it was yeah, a I r- was going to say, John <laughs> Hurt.
0: Could, okay then, let's, uh, could David Tennant?
1: Well, actually, yeah. David Tennant would be able to have done, like, he could have done this. Episode, like, any of them. He talks like anything. So, yeah, and actually, yeah. maybe all the modern doctors could.
0: Mm, I was just going to say, probably all mm. of the modern doctors. It, it would be Baker. a very different episode. Yeah. And they'd each treat it completely differently. Mm. Can you imagine what Matt Smith would have done with this? Mm. But yeah, yeah. (laughs) certainly all the modern doctors you could imagine having. It's like when the series came back, at the end of series one with Christopher Eccleston, immediately this rumour sprang up that there'd be a bottle episode set entirely inside the TARDIS, and it would just be the Doctor and his companion or whatever, and some kind of story set inside the TARDIS. And this was a rumour that just carried on year after year after year, Oh, will this be the year when we get the bottle episode? And when somebody starts a rumour like that, it's speculation. But because it catches on, people just kind of get so used to it that they assume it's on the minds of the people who are making the programme as well as the people who are watching it. And this is a bit like that. Mm. To have a single-hander just for the Doctor is one of those things now where you look back and you think, okay, Midnight, is The Doctor Without a Companion. And it's not that much of a stretch to go from The Doctor Without a Companion to The Doctor with nobody else at all. So you could imagine Russell T. Davis having the idea. So even as far back as maybe Christopher Eccleston, you wouldn't have had it with Christopher Eccleston in that single first series, because they were testing the water, they weren't that brave. But if Christopher Eccleston had carried on for three years... Mm. Christopher Eccleston could have had an episode like this mm. in his third year, it's not it doesn't stretch it is, it is the, the bra- imagination it is, it is
1: the bravery of, of modern TV that you can get away with this sort of thing Tom Baker, yeah, but then this this was happening in the Edge of, edge of Destruction yeah, 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 but what, what I mean is the, the Doctor on his own yes. handling the entire episode mm, mm. well I what mean, it is, Tom Baker did it as like Midnight he didn't have a companion but he had a whole load of other characters around mm. him. Um but this is well, unique, that was, isn't it? this is an absolutely unique episode of the Doctor only being on his own. Yeah. Not yeah. even the like you say, the monsters as kind of nothing.
0: Well, it Back in nineteen sixty four, Edge of Destruction, they just did things. There was no parameters by which the series was formatted, Not by a which theatre going on as well. Well it was <laughs> and Throughout the 1960s and into the 1970s, you just did stuff. The Doctor gets exiled to Earth. Mm. You just did it. You didn't think to yourselves, uh, what does this mean in philosophical terms? You thought, what does it mean in production terms? It'll be cheaper to make. Turned out it wasn't. But that's why you do it. As a production thing, not as a philosophical thing. Mm. So you, but in the modern day, after things like Doc Cotton, and after things like Grumpy Old Men which is a series which where somebody actually sat down. It's Alan Bennett, isn't it? Alan Bennett? Yeah, it's Alan Bennett. Alan Bennett, Bennett and
1: does Talking Heads. And, yeah. Oh, Talking
0: yeah, Heads. Yeah. But somebody actually sat down and said, right, you know, you've had single-handed plays on the stage for donkey's years. Do it on TV. And then it becomes a thing. So when you get the Doc Cotton episode of EastEnders, which I've never seen, but I've heard about it, right? Mm-hmm. That's a thing. You don't just have... uh, Prior to something like Talking Heads, and I'm not saying that's where it started, but prior to something like that, if EastEnders had been going in the 60s, you could have had a single-handed episode of EastEnders in the 60s, and it wouldn't have been a thing. It would just have been an episode with only one person in. But you get to the point in television, and I think this happened in the 1980s, and I think this was consolidated in the 1990s, where television has kind of split into the things you do with it. And so one of the things you do with it is monologues. And so when you're writing EastEnders, when you're producing EastEnders, you say, OK, what can we do to shake it up, to keep people watching, to pique people's, pique people's interest? Let's do a single-hander. And it's not, let's do an episode with just one person, and it's, let's do a single-hander. And the way... He, yeah, let's do a live episode. Yeah. 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 And the way he, a casual audience are watching tonight's Doctor Who is they're not watching it and seeing the journey that the Doctor goes on. They're not watching it and thinking, whoa, that's Gallifrey at the end. They're not watching it and thinking the Companion's just died and this is a journey the Doctor has to take in order to get to be somewhere else. They're watching it and thinking, oh, the Doctor Who people have done a single-hander. Mm.
1: That's all y- they're thinking. You mentioned that... Journey and I said earlier that you could probably have extracted this episode out the whole season and we wouldn't be missing anything. Do you, you, th- do you think he does go on a journey then?
0: Do you know what? He uh, will. But this is the thing, isn't it? Because what should have happened here is that you end up at the end of Face of Raven with Clara dying, and then what I thought this episode might be, and it was it was deeper than I thought what I thought this episode might be knowing what the cliffhanger was was the Time Lords discovering somehow that Clara had died realizing the doctor would be angry tucking him away for x amount of months or whatever inside the confession dial to allow his anger to eke away so that when he comes out he can be reasonable with them and obviously that's not what it was but he ends the episode in basically the same place where he starts it. Mm. So really, it is an episode that you could take out, and you wouldn't be missing anything. Right. Well, apart from the episode itself.
1: But even in his mind, even in his his, his soul, has he has he moved on a bit? Has he changed? He's just prepared himself really for the next he's chapter. He's of what's happening. He's greed for Clara. He's, he's, gone he's for done morning, a bit of it's that. the mourning process as well. Mm. Yeah, you're mm. right, actually. I never thought about that.
0: Mm. I'm he's not that... entirely sure he has, because all the time she's been there in the TARDIS and he's been yeah. talking to her.
1: But maybe this... But he has resolved it, because um, it th- was kind of symbolic. Done? I mean, that's the impression I got, was the fact that you know you saw the back of her head. She was yeah. never saw her face. No. Which kind of symbolised the, the fact he got, wasn't really you, facing up to it. You did see her. Well, was...
0: yeah, the bit at the end where she speaks to him, where you hear her voice, That's that. Yeah, but I don't think the rest of the episode really sold that. I think, well, what I got from it was when he's seen a certain him...
1: amount of denial in that respect.
0: Yes, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, when you see Clara in the TARDIS, it's almost like he's denying that it's happened, and because he's on his own, it's festering. So mm. that when you get to the episode end of the episode, he's pretty much in the same place as he was coming into the episode, and maybe that's deliberate. Maybe they want him to be emotionally in the same place, but to have that scene where Clara's voice comes in. And, then, you know, that's very deliberate. You could have done that without having to have Clara's voice, because all throughout it she's been talking to him on the blackboard. So it's very, very deliberate that he's heard Clara's voice. It's
1: nice that it kind of echoed the Amy thing as well, at the end of, name of the name Doctor, uh, Time of the Doctor. Sorry.
0: Well, we've yet to see what happens with Clara, because... I've no doubt that she can turn up. The actress is going to turn up in next week's episode. Mm. Mm. Do You know, what?
1: I, I reckon he would have, he could have cut, shaved off a good half a million years by using something other than his fist. There's plenty of things to pick up there, weren't there? Really? Well, he his <laughs> glasses he was, with him. Maybe one of the bricks, the, the spade, know. the spade. How quickly would you have got through the wall with a spade? That's like a couple of hundred thousand years. Mm. Yeah, but let's not forget he was getting to the same conclusion every time. Yeah, he was going through the same process, and he but I think by the time he didn't, he, got but to, also, he didn't sort of think, oh, hang on, I didn't bring the spade last time.
0: But also, there's a metaphorical <laughs> thing there. that he's doing it without a weapon.
1: Yes, oh, he's, yeah. he's, he's just, thumping something really hard with his. He's feeling the pain. It's all no, no, coming no, no, out. But do, no. But he's no, but he's doing cool.
0: it. But he's doing it with his own hands. That's the that's that's the whole point of the, the metaphor, whatever you want to call it. That he's doing it with his own hands. And when he's digging into the ground, and we said when he started digging into the ground, what's he doing here? Is he digging his own grave? Mm. And that is the metaphor for at the end where he's digging himself. At one point it looks like he's digging himself into something, but that's kind of the mirror of at the end where he's digging himself out of something. Mm. So, I mean, the whole thing is, I didn't think it justified the better part of an hour, to be honest.
1: No, possibly not.
0: I think no, could uh, I think it took too long to get to some of the. Oh, I thought it
1: was all killer. I do think it was all killer. Yeah, I don't really see why it was any longer than any normal episode. No, you, but... you could have speeded certain bits up, but I don't think that was the point. It wasn't supposed to be a speedy episode, was it?
0: Hmm. Mm. Well, it's on the direction. I'm assuming the script is the Who same. Who was length the director again? The... Rachel Talalay did the Cyberman 2 part at the end of last year.
1: Did she? Mm. Right. That's great, actually, yeah.
0: Oh it I was very it. it was very unfussily directed. Brilliant I wish I'd picked up on the orange light.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Big well, clue all the way through. Well, it wouldn't for me. some dickhead spoiled it for me, but there you go. Yeah. I say I, that. I think you should you know, say... No, I think you no, should no, no, say I, that. I say that. I'm being a bit harsh, actually, because... No, I, I
0: don't think you are being harsh. No, because... Well, you were just lucky to escape the spoilers. so you you were, they, they were everyone. everywhere. So glad. Today,
1: somebody had literally put on... Well, I won't tell you, actually, because you haven't seen it yet, but... Well, maybe you have. But they actually put on... I know oh,
0: we saw the actor in question okay, in they, the they, next time they, they put a
1: picture of... Um,
0: Donald Sumter.
1: Yeah. As a, as a Time Lord standing there. And um, it said, spoiler alert... So and so and so is time lord. They're back, hurrah, something like that. And of course, on a timeline on Facebook and whatever device you use, no matter how many times you try and block these things, it pops up.
0: Now. Lee Simon is one of a very small number of people who have avoided that spoiler. It has to be said. I've got to say, I, th- I just don't. I, s- I, if, I,
1: if I hadn't have looked at my Facebook this afternoon, you'd have escaped it. As I'd have well. escaped it because I've been. Doing you actively careful. avoid them. That's the thing. I actively avoid them, and I'm very, very careful. And the thing is, you know, it's not the end of the world, and we're going to, you know, cry over it. But I was, I was pretty miffed. But it wasn't just me, of course. There's a huge amount of people on going, What the hell are you doing? You know, because this it's a picture. It's a JPEG. It will just click up. So you've got no control of it. It's right there. It was a wonderful moment. Yeah, and so I rubbing the salt in the wound. That's what I'm just trying to say. Watching your face, it's great. And I could see you go, oh! And I went, bloody hell! That's the moment I was looking forward to. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And this guy it for me. You know, Life of Brian. You know, the guy who doesn't speak for sixty years. Oh yeah, yeah. Protecting his juniper bushes, and and (laughs) the treads on his foot. Uh, You know, that was the moment that bloke trod on my toes. Basically, it was just like, oh, great. You know, it's completely spoiled. But I mean, you know, pissing it, on your chips. As we're, I say. Li- we're, li- we're looking mm. at a world where people will put these things out and do these things, and it's the very BBC difficult put to avoid. It out. The BBC put it out. You know, it was.
0: It was probably in... on the front
1: of the Radio Times as well. Who you knows? So I don't know.
0: Yeah, that came out this morning.
1: Right. It wasn't on the front,
0: but it was. Yeah. I th- I'm not sure. You know, it may have been inside.
1: Well, in which case, that's the BBC. I mean. Obviously wanted to get you to watch it. I know, but because Steve Moffat himself why? desperately wants them to stop doing that sort of thing.
0: You know, what, if they why? can.
1: Why do it? Why do that? Well,
0: because it's just... There was a technical issue. There's, um... The, the, you know when you bring up on your Sky Plus or whatever it is you're watching and there's a little bit of blurb that comes up with the episode? Mm-hmm. Those have to be sent out to media outlets three weeks in advance of the episode. Right. In order so that things can be programmed into you know sky plus and virgin and whatever so that the listings magazines have got some little blurb to put in the listing because these things are all you know they don't do it in the last couple of days before it goes on the show. no 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 no, no. Well in
1: advance. so
0: there's a technical thing where it gets sent out three four weeks in advance of uh the episode being on and so they sent the one out for the next episode two and a half weeks ago and it said with the doctor a bag on gallifrey mm-hmm. So that was it, spoiled. Because the, the thing about the way this works is there's a page on the BBC website that's a press page that's not able to be accessed by any member of the public but that because there are so many press outlets and if you want to say press outlets these days you have to include websites and podcasts and everything else. It, it was out there. It escaped into the world about a fortnight or so ago.
1: Wow. I have managed to escape with it for two weeks. That's pretty good. <clears throat> it was only the picture that flagged up then. So, yeah, it was a, it was very annoying. I would wish people just would avoid doing that. But, again, I, you know, I, I called the guy a dickhead, but to be honest, I don't know him. I mean, he's, he probably just put up because he was excited about Doctor Who and he didn't think about the repercussions of how many people underneath is going to go, right, mate, I'm, <laughs> I'm clicking don't like or whatever I'm getting you off the the side. It's whether you get the choice or but not. But it's six thousand it? people that would have had that on their time. I'm right? sure a smile or two will say, you know, oh well you shouldn't be a member of the group or something like that. But we're we members of other groups. I'm a, I'm members of very few now. Yeah. And though and those are full of people who actively try to avoid that happening for people, you know, or yes. they'll put something massive so that you literally can't see the picture unless you click on it. You that's, have a choice. That's the sort of thing, yeah. But anyway, it's just the way it is, isn't it? Mm. I mean I think I did something similar about a year or two ago, by accident, by putting up and saying, oh, you know, I'm really excited about this. And then somebody in America said, we haven't had it yet, mate. I went, oh, God, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I learned straight away, just don't do that. Just mm. just leave until the day after.
0: But, you know. But this is that's slightly be, different. I don't want to sound too precious. That's because if different. the episode goes out in the UK 12 hours before it goes out in America, you cannot expect... 6 million people, 8 million people watching it in one country not to talk about it in the meantime Mm. so that's Mm. slightly different Um, I was going to bring something up as well, just about lunch? no, don't talk to me about the last few weeks (laughs) (coughs) you both reached for your tea when I said that (laughs) (laughs) time to take a breather (laughs) it's the third episode in a row that's kind of had fundamental flaws that's had to overcome those flaws by bringing the audience on side through other things. You know, this week, the whole thing about, you know, what we talked about earlier about the flaw about... Oh, well, I can't even call it up into words now. What was the flaw we talked about earlier? Oh, well, it's earlier in the podcast anyway. The people listening won't be looking as blankly at me as you two are right now. <laughs> There's a fundamental flaw in the story this week. But the story wins out over that because everything else that's working is doing it so well that you don't care. Mm. Last week, there was a fundamental flaw in the story. And last week, the last 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes, worked so well, you mostly didn't care. And it mostly got away with it. The week before, there was a pretty fundamental flaw there too. And it didn't work so well. And it got the lowest... Um, appreciation index that modern Doctor Who's ever had. Wow, really? Really? Yes.
1: Sorry, um, go. How do they measure that again?
0: They asked five thousand people to score the episode out of ten. ten awesome uh, a sample of the audience to score. And this it is out the of, greatest episode. Yeah, and it got a seventy-eight. Whereas generally speaking, this year it's been getting around the eighty-two, eighty-three mark. Mm. You used to get around the 85, 86 mark. Peter Capaldi came in and it automatically lost two points.
2: Mm.
0: People, who was it you said, you said Lee, wasn't it? You asked a group of young kids Mm -hmm. and they all said, no, we prefer the younger doctors.
1: Yeah. My wife does as well. She's not really taking much interest in this series at all. You can't, no. can't warm to him. No, Pick doesn't... No, my wife doesn't like him either. I think you appreciate she, him she, rather than warm to him, don't her you? Word, yeah. Her words were... Yeah. oh, You, you know, if you're going to have a new Doctor, you've got a bit of eye candy with it. I was like, oh... Mm. Yeah. It says the S- woman who falls asleep in the first ten minutes of Star Wars. Mrs Han Solo.
0: This is what happened when you cast David Tennant. I don't think anybody knew what David Tennant was going to be, but, you know, they cast David Tennant because... He was the right kind of character for the job. And also, being a Doctor Who fan, he knew what the job entailed. And he'd just worked with Russell T Davies on Casanova, so he was in the right place at the right time. They cast David Tennant. And, you know, you can never predict who is going to become a heartthrob to an Asian. But when an actor becomes a heartthrob to an Asian like that, you know, that's an automatic half an extra million people on the viewing figures. That's an automatic two extra points in the Appreciation Index. And so for the three years where David Tennant was the Doctor, you know, in terms of being in full series as opposed to the specials, Doctor Who got this massive bump. And then Matt Smith was never supposed to be the next Doctor. Stephen Moffat wanted to go with somebody A in older. the sort of 40-ish region. Yeah. And Matt Smith walked in and nailed the audition. And Stephen Moffat you know, rewrote the first half a series of that to account for it. That whole business with Amy Pond fancying the Doctor, that finishes the Angel's story and then he can get on with telling the, you know, you're the parents of River Song story. Mm. But he had to put those first five in where she fancies him to account for the fact that all of a sudden you've got a 26-year-old instead of a 40-year-old. Because, you know, the audience, after four years of David Tennant, are expecting the companion to fancy the Doctor. And if you're going to do a story when the companion doesn't, you have to give them a reason why. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Moffat does that, but you've still got David Tennant and Matt Smith there Mm. in the TARDIS. There's no escaping it now. And we talked about this before. I think the BBC are fine with the AIs being two points down. I think the BBC are fine, given where they've scheduled it, not just 8 o'clock at night, but also against the X Factor and the time of year with the audience being half a million down. And it's
1: just the UK that, you know, that people are worrying about. They forget the global impact of Doctor Who as well. At the no, moment.
0: no, my point being Sorry, that that's what happens when you get an older Doctor. And when Capaldi leaves, you get a younger one again. Not necessarily a young one again, but a younger one again. And, you know, it swings and roundabouts. Yeah, if I mean, you're gonna... when, when they
1: finally cast the young woman that's going to be the next Doctor, it's going to definitely um, up the figures.
0: And... But the, the if you're in it for the long haul, then you've got to expect Wayne as well as Wax. Absolutely. Because you don't just get Wax. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> if, if you're hoping... We're 11 years in now, and we've got the next series confirmed, I and do. in fact they're talking about... Doctor Who being pretty much confirmed up to 2020, that's 15 years. Mm, and they're presumably intending for it to go on long beyond that too because it's massive success and it brings in a massive amount of money. But if you're going to have a, a long-term, not plan, but a, a sort of projected intention for 25 years or something, you've got to expect there to be years when... You know, the overnights are 4 million instead of 6. Especially with iPlayer and stuff. But, and with the AIs are 80 instead of 85.
1: Mm-hmm. You
0: can't expect it to stay at a certain level the whole I time. I think that's quite hard.
1: There you go.
0: Mm. Oh, it is. Mm. I mean, the, the threshold for the BBC to... Well, there's no threshold for them to cancel something. But generally with drama series, I think the threshold for it to be regarded as poor is something like an AI of 60. Doctor Who's only ever twice dropped into the seventies. Hmm. You know, out of 136 episodes, or something, since it came back, 134 of them have been in the eighties.
2: Hmm.
0: And you know, I don't think it's dropped out of the top 30 programmes for the week, whatever time of year it's been on. No. It's a massive success, whatever way you look at it. But like I say, you've got to expect wax and wane to come along with that and I don't know why I've just done this whole thing because I just wrote this whole thing in my column in the next Starburst and now (laughs) when people get it in a fortnight even though I wrote it a month ago it's going to look like I was just writing this conversation up
1: well you can stop reading from that bit of paper now you ever think about just very briefly nipping back to that retconning thing if you read Marvel comics then you'll be very used to retconning happens so much they literally does. rewrite the the history of a character, of just like mm. that. but you can all do that the in comics. The it's really canon, isn't yeah. it? Well, they've essentially been reinvented all the time, aren't they? Mm. Mm. Characters who supposedly died, and then you find out that no, they didn't die because it was an alien copy, and the other one was at the bottom of a lake, and stuff like that.
0: <laughs> Man from Atlantis, territory, or oh, no, no, Man from Atlantis. What is it? Bobby Ewing in the shower, territory. Yeah, it is. <laughs> That's what Absolutely,
1: I mean. yeah, yeah.
0: Well, that's why he was in the shower, because he'd been doing Man from Atlantis, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, webbed. Figuratively and literally, he left the series to do yeah. Man from Atlantis and then came back and did the shower scene.
1: Did he do Gemini Man as well? Was that somebody else? Mm, don't know. Yeah. No. No, he had a watch in Man from Atlantis, didn't he? Because he, he could only stay out the Man water so long. Watch. I oh, know, like, yeah, but I think from Melantis had one as well to to breathe. You no, know, to measure how long he was out of the water or something. Right, otherwise he'd dry up. Just yeah, <laughs> you you just pull gill on the floor he the floor and flip I like a know. dolphin. <laughs> we could watch one. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I never
0: hey, really saw it. Well, speaking about evolutionary issues, sleep. On the subject of sleep, no more. You know, watching it again this week, the big flaw at the heart of that is that. And, you know, this is the the number one crime in writing television is not having the courage of your convictions. There's a speech in there about the snot monsters, about how they're going to replace mankind.
1: Yeah.
0: And it's just not sold with any conviction in the writing. That is quite a big subject for, you know, for you to address the subject of evolutionary change. And it mm. can be a minor part of a story, as long as you treat it with conviction and seriousness when you bring it up. He says these are going to replace mankind, and there's just no conviction in the way he says it. And the, the thing about the monsters is, you look at them and you think, that's not the next you know, evolutionary step up. It doesn't have to be a step up. Because the way evolution works is, it's not that you step up; it's that something changes, like the moon arriving in orbit around the Earth, or whatever it was. Mm. And the dinosaurs (laughs) are gone, and the mammals arrive. Right? Mm. I mean, if you look at it, probably if we were to die off, the next thing that would happen would be the insects, Mm. possibly, or I don't know. Who can say? You know, on that subject. Well, on that subject. (laughs) I don't know whether mankind's got to the point now where we've developed enough technology and enough know-how that we never could be killed off.
1: Not quite. Nearly there.
0: A I, don't try, know, I don't I think know. so. I, uh, you know, possibly the only thing, if the planet was destroyed.
1: we will probably die choking on our own methane.
0: They've well, developed
1: this new engine, haven't well, they, that works in space?
0: Global warming, Right. That might decimate the population, but there'd still be 90% of the population here. Yeah, because there'd be certain
1: yeah. certain um, races living within certain conditions that they'd be used to it anyway. Yeah, we'll develop gills to stop their methane from getting in. Anyway, if you have got some emails? No, but
0: this is it. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is an interesting subject, Lee. Stop trying to... You've
1: heard about this engine they've developed, though, that works in a um, zero-gravity environment. Uh, and they written they could get to Mars in eight weeks. With this new oh yeah, I have heard about this. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Works in a vacuum.
1: In a vacuum. Sorry. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There you go. Who's in
1: space?
0: Well, this is it. I think as a species, we've got to the point now where whatever problem we threw at us, Mm. we'd find some way to overcome it. And even if it wasn't Everything holding us back, is us. mm, If even if it's money. Even if it's not 7 billion people who survive, if 700 people survive, the species survives. I don't think, as a species, we're rid of now. I mean, the dinosaurs, they're gone because, as a species, they haven't developed any means to overcome some kind of disaster that befalls them. But we have. We can look forward and predict the disasters, and we can work out some way of mm-hmm. surviving the disasters before they even arrive.
1: Yeah, they're even going to um, try and um, grab hold of an asteroid, aren't they, and, and blow bits up and move it around to see if we can adjust its course. That's uh, happening in the next seven years or so. You know, well, and this is it. We Just may, like the films.
0: <laughs> we may evolve as a species, mm. but as a species, even if we've evolved, we'll still be around. Anyway... There. That's. I um, read hmm.
1: a really, really inter- interesting um article about how we are reaching the last stages of the capitalist society. That at some point. Oh yeah. Yeah. We will, this has been we a socialist
0: will... country for a hundred years and more now. Mm, as mm. soon as the welfare state arrived, which just getting rid of this mindset of believing that the only way forward is money. Well, this is. I mean, if you want to divide it up, you have essentially. I don't know what the correct terminology is there are essentially four phases which would start with essentially anarchy and leading to um the kind of hierarchies where you have you know the guy who runs the castle and serfdoms and stuff like that mm. and eventually you move into capitalism where money has replaced power land mm. and then you move into socialism where you set up something like the welfare state and the society will look after its own and then you move into communism, and that doesn't necessarily mean everybody's equal, but it means everybody has the potential. Yeah, yeah. So, and we are towards the end of the third stage of socialism. Mm. We've had the welfare state fund. You know, people are saying at the moment, "Oh, capitalism's coming back in." It's not. It's kicking its last. It is kicks absolutely. Before it dies. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, things it's like in Amazon. Its the
1: survival instincts kicked in. Things, doing all these things to try and re-establish it. But it's, it's with mm. things like the internet where you've got information getting anywhere. And um, people being creative and doing things. In, even the level of self-publishing and things like that. The individual is empowered in so much more now. The creative. The creative mind is becoming empowered. Because it's something that can't be, I won't say held it can't be controlled. But it can't be held back. And they don't, you know, They're trying to figure out how they can control it, because that's what capitalists do. they They're essentially middlemen,
0: and people like Alan Sugar, yeah, is essentially and I'm not saying this might happen because these things take hundreds, if not thousands of years to come around. But Alan Sugar is essentially one of the last of his kind. There aren't you know these kind of moguls, like Simon says, Amazon have facilitated an awful lot of change in the way society is run. And at the moment, one man's benefiting from that. But eventually, that model will become subsumed into society so that you won't have people benefiting, you know, individuals benefiting from it, but the society itself will. That's how society adapts. That's how things like the NHS came into being in the first place. All the ideas for the NHS are around before the NHS is formed, and then you form the NHS. And what you do is you take all the ideas that other people have thought out, and you use it to the benefit of society. So, you yeah,
1: have one of the richest men in the world, Bill Gates, suddenly turn around saying, "Let's spend two billion pounds." Yeah, he's looking forward. £2, two billion dollars. Yeah, two billion dollars yeah. rather to. Um, try and save the planet in a way with uh, you know yeah, he suggested the that the one percent the richest one percent of the planet should pay for them to sort out reusable energy because it's renewable energy because it's possible because it can be done because it can be done and he's put forward his two billion dollars and he's waiting for the, the rest to do the same <laughs> yeah if you wait in a while but yeah. you know it's one of, it's a sh- that kind of show that display of somebody who has earned so much money I hate that well, phrase, out outside of the box. What George Lucas but... did
0: with the money he sold Star Wars for?
1: Yeah.
0: Sorry? What George Lucas did with the money he sold Star Wars for? What did he do with that? Stuck it into education. Whole... Well, what did he sell it for? Four billion dollars or something? No, possibly no. To wow. Disney. And he, yeah. every last cent of that went into the um, American education system.
1: There you go. That's the kind of thing we're looking
0: at. But 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 that's not really what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the way society adapts mm. Mm. so that it takes the things that it needs into itself in order to move along this chain of events that we're eventually moving towards. And, you know, people get scared of the word communism, but, you know, you've got to think of it in terms of what Karl Marx said, which he was only repeating from, oh, I can't remember the name of the guy who was repeating it from, from everyone according to his ability to everyone according to their need. Hmm. It's essentially people working towards a
1: common cause, isn't it? Simple as that. It's, think, it's thinking bigger than just your own front garden. That Actually, if I just do this, I just do that. Actually, that helps everyone. Therefore, we all have a happier life. We're more content. Hmm. But there's always somebody who has something missing in their life where they believe that they want or they're entitled to something which is going to make their life better. I don't have a front garden.
0: Of course, we're looking at this in terms of Western civilization, and the rest of the world's got a long way to catch up. Absolutely. And this is what I mean when I say it takes centuries, Mm -hmm. if not thousands of years, but that is essentially the way society works. Anyway, should Mm. we uh, maybe score the episode? (laughs) I'm quite. How we we managed to get a conversation
1: that builds up so much hope, so much bloody depressing reality (laughs) at the same time is... Right, I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. Um, I thought it was excellent. Every every aspect of it I totally enjoyed. I can see its flaws, but I'm totally going to forgive it um, because it's just a brave move which I thought worked. So there we go. Mm. Simon... Do you know what? It was such a one-off and such, uh, I don't like using the word brave, but do you know what? That's how I want television to be. I want it to surprise me and I want it to be that spectacular. And I'm not going to spend time thinking about the people who are going to slag it off because they will. And just, I just think it deserves a 10.
0: It's working away. I was going to say he's working his way towards a six, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to give it a ten because I think it deserves it. Um, because I don't think there's
1: any such thing as a perfect episode. The Doctor's probably about the most perfect thing I've ever seen, but even that's got you know little niggles that I would change, and you know, things that don't make sense if you think about them too much. But do you know what? Get on a roller coaster. You don't think about how it works. You think about whether it gives you a thrill ride, mm. and and that's what it did for me. And I
0: think it deserves it. And I'm gonna give it an eight on account of the fact that you know my analytical my analytical brain is what it is, and in some ways, I think this episode is a trick on the audience it's
1: <laughs> You're saying I mean trick? No, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's fair yeah. enough. so gullible, well, Simon. <laughs> no, 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 I don't joking, mean it that joking. way. Yeah, yeah.
0: But what I mean is, it's like, what Stephen Moffat's done is, I've got this story, and... It's probably not actually that great of a story, and lots of people have done that story before. But what the hell is the kind of thing you wouldn't expect Doctor Who to be able to do, and in order to smuggle it into Doctor Who, I'm going to give you this other magical thing that will distract your attention. So in some ways, he's played a trick on the audience. Mm. He's told a story that doesn't really fit, but he's sold it to you on the fact that it's Peter Capaldi.
1: Yeah, I mean, if there's anything that's going to knock down a point, it's the retconning business, because... But I don't want to do that.
0: Well, we'll see how that works out next week. Yeah, it may not be. Well, yeah, I think it is. <laughs> so that, that is another mm. thing. This
1: is a stepping stone to the finale. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's it is almost one of those episodes. It's just a little bit out there, but it's also preparing you in a way. So yeah, that, that, you know, yeah. Bird though, I'm not keen on bird.
0: <laughs> no. This episode will go down in Doctor Who history. It's oh. one of those episodes that make people sit up and take notice. Mm.
1: Great, great creature thing as well. Didn't really talk too much about I, that, but I love the idea of it. All I would death say to anyone who just thought it was a load of baloney is that how brilliant that we can have television like that. That, that after 52 years, it can still surprise us. Yeah, Best, thing on Best
0: thing on
1: TV. Best thing on TV. I'm going to start
0: calling him Doc Capaldi. (laughs) Or Peter Cotton. Emails. Go for it. Uh, Gentlemen, I think you might have got the wrong end of the stick last week when talking about the elderly couple in Face the Raven, the ones where the man was killed for stealing medical supplies for presumably his wife. You asked why two Cybermen would have fallen in love, but nobody said that they were Cybermen. When the old man was about to be killed so horribly by the raven, we get this exchange. Doctor, at least give him a merciful death. Ashilda, you think a Cyberman fears a merciful death? Surely the point she was making was that whatever punishment she devised had to be something which would keep all of the various aliens in line, from an Ood to a Cyberman. We'd already seen that there was at least one Cyberman on the street. Ashilda could as well have said... A merciful death might keep an Ood in line, but would it scare a Cyberman or a Santaran? She wasn't saying that the elderly couple were Cybermen, merely that they were the unfortunate victims of a law which had to be especially harsh because of some of the more violent species it also had to control. As for Ashilda, having run that trap street since Waterloo Station was built, that was her being sarcastic, surely. Doctor, how long have you been here? Ashilda, since Waterloo. Doctor, the battle, shilder No, the station, really, Doctor. Plus, Clara says almost as soon as they meet shilder that the Doctor last lost track of her in the early 1800s. There's a walk and talk scene in the West Wing where CJ tells Josh that she needs him to read a briefing paper on smallpox. Josh asks, the disease? And CJ replies, no, the dessert topping. <laughs> Admittedly... <laughs> Both misunderstandings might have been avoided if the character of a shielder hadn't featured some of the most wooden delivery since Rick James.
1: I was just about to say, before you got to that last line, the common thread between those two exchanges there was the delivery. Mm. So maybe yeah. she just didn't understand the line? We no, this was me. you saying the intonation was slightly off. Yes, yeah. because <clears throat> the thing about the Cyberman, that we did think... It we? did, it did, it flowed from that, that yeah. she was talking about what she was looking at. Exactly, so you so know it could down to anything. It been, comes, to, it comes down to direction and understanding what the script. Is, oh, I no, appreciate we, what you say. When I watched it the second time, yes, I understood yeah. what was going on. But I was but, still thinking Cyberman as well. I looked at it the second time, and thought, "Yeah, it does feel like she's talking about this old guy being a Cyberman." Yeah, and actually, it's, it's like it's, literally putting a subtitle under the yeah. under that scene and saying, "This is what I'm." Yeah. talking about the two were also, related but the the death was harsh for medical supplies stealing really wasn't it don't you think well yeah it's it kind be of explained a of... I don't yeah. I don't actually think personally think it was the best of lines really because it's just not clear no it wasn't
0: I think it's well enough written I no I think it's well no, the so man
1: thing I don't it just doesn't no, 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 I, no I think I it's think perfectly it is, fine like, the way it's, yeah. it's written yeah. okay. I just think it's the direction and the actress not getting getting the line right to be honest and what was the other
0: one the one about Waterloo. And yeah, the station.
1: totally. Again, I thought she was talking about the station. I, I, it's just the way it's delivered. It wasn't sarcastic enough, if that's the mm. if that's the point of it. That's In why, I, case, when that's... I read
0: it out just now, I give it a bunch of sarcasm,
1: which makes it much better exchange. I get it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I thought it was funny.
0: Anyway. This is, keep up the good work, you continue to live up to your own standards, doc whom. <laughs> and I did tell him, he wasn't... <laughs> That's a good line. <laughs> we use that every week, bloody Ellie.
1: Oh, really? I'm asleep by that point. Go on. I did
0: tell him, he wasn't the first person who pointed that out to me. <laughs> and yes, when I watched it again yesterday, completely got it. Um, oh, this is... Dear JR, Lee, Simon and Mark... I always enjoy your excellent podcast, which has no peer. It's a very high-level conversation for a group of blokes hanging around talking about a TV show. I've been performing the podcast equivalent of time travel recently, catching up on some of your previous efforts. I listened to your... Oh, dear. I listened to your Cyberman review, and I think it was Lee who contended that if it wasn't for the last-minute edition of the handles on the head of the Cybermen, they may have failed as a monster. During a Star Wars discussion, I believe also it was Lee who contended that without John Williams' score, Star Wars IV: A New Hope may have flopped. While I disagree with both of these contentions, it seems to me that Doctor Who is filled with this type of watershed event, things that if they had not happened as they did, might have meant no long-running series and no podcasts discussing it. I think an interesting topic for your review might be an examination of these turning points. If it wasn't for, insert contention here, we wouldn't have the programme as it is now. The obvious situation, number one, is the choice to have the Doctor regenerate when it was decided that Hartnell Mm. was done. What a brilliant solution and a point of paramount importance in the evolution of the programme. What say you, gentlemen, about other great turning points in the history of the Doctor? And that's from Nick Knoll, a.k.a. Shrink Wrapped Who. Hmm... Um, that's that's
1: a, I think that's a really good idea. He's called Shrinkwrap,
0: too, because he's actually a psychologist. Is he? Yes.
1: Right. So you had, you had your sarcastic head on then for a second.
0: <laughs> oh, no, I looked him up. OK. That's a bit stalky. Why is it? I wanted to know... What colour
1: jumper does he wear, Joe?
0: I have no idea what colour <laughs> jumper he wears. He wrote an email in. I wanted to find out who the email was from. Thank you very much, Shrink Doctor. What do you think of the idea? Do we do an episode? we think we'll got... take a bit of
1: examination though, isn't it? Oh, no, we, we have, have got... That'd be good.
0: Oh no, I think we should just come up with ten things that were turning points that probably
1: yeah.
0: are things that caused the life of the programme and to ask if they'd have happened another way or not happened at all, would the programme have still carried on? Like, like the casting of Matt Smith? Well, no, I was thinking more in the early days, things like having the Dalek story when okay. it was supposed to be a Malcolm Hulk story. Right. If we hadn't have had the Dalek story, would yeah. we still be watching Doctor Who? Mm. Things like that. <clears throat> so, not necessarily all that no. important, but that sort of thing. So we just thing.
1: come up with a few ideas and throw them in, <coughs> throw them in a, a pot, mm. and then you can decide which ones to talk about. We pull them out and just improvise. So there we go with it. Well,
0: I've already got six or seven just from reading his email and thinking, yeah, that, and yeah, that. Yeah. Okay. And after all, next year, we have got about 15 months' worth of podcasts to record with no series. <laughs> Just a full day. Well, <laughs> Still on one day, have a year off. <clears throat> hey, we'll see how it goes, but we, yeah. we'll have lots more time next year. Did he
1: say he disagreed with me about the, the handles think, on the Cyberman uh, and the music? I think the soundtrack was, yes. was either me or J.R., I I don't remember you saying that about the soundtrack. Well, anyway, he's listened to it more recently, so I may have said that. I can imagine me saying something like that. Do you know what? I
0: don't think the important thing is which one of us he thought said it, but (laughs) what he was he thought the the person had said. But in a way... Yeah, but if Lee said both those stupid things, then no.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, but but I'm fairly sure I said the soundtrack. As a graphic graphic designer, I'm sure you said the handles one. But anyway... um, the, stu- mm. the soundtrack is they interesting. That's what he's saying.
0: Simon said both the stupid things. Yeah, actually. Yeah. Neither of the things were stupid. <laughs> I do love those <laughs> <med laughs> <laughs> Neither of the things were stupid. No. And not only were they not were they stupid, not stupid no, we they were somewhere. intelligent enough that even though he disagrees with them sure. at a per se level, what he's saying is they're definitely close enough to the mark that they give you pause for thought, yeah. mm. hence the fact that he's thought enough to write an email.
1: It, it's, it wasn't, for Star Wars, it wasn't a single thing, was it? It wasn't just the music that helped it raise it up to, to the level of... was. It was Those. the effects and all the passion and all, all that kind of stuff. But what people were saying on the set at the time you know, Alec Guinness, everybody was talking about, God, this is just a B-movie, this isn't going anywhere. You can write ch-
0: this shit, but you can't make <laughs> me
1: say it. Exactly. And we had, you know, we've met people from, from the from the production, so we've talked to them, and, and they were all saying, yeah, we had no idea this was gonna, ever going to become as big as it was. And I remember, I think it was Paul Blake, who played Greedo, I might be misquoting him, but anyway, he said something like, he went, oh, Alan Fling, actually, he was one of the stormtroopers, he said, I went to go and see the, the film... And he, the music kicked him, and the effects of the the spaceship. And he said, between the two things, he just couldn't believe what he's watching. It just totally made the film for him one of the best things he's ever or seen. Awe inspiring, or inspiring. Yeah. So I think it was between, you know, it was the, it was a beautiful mix of everything, really. But the music was so strong and so memorable. My God, do you know what's
0: just happened? What? <laughs> We've had one of those moments, like I was talking about in The Lodger and The Big Bang, because. <laughs> If Lee didn't say it, he has done now. <laughs> Justify that he did. Yeah, it's like, oh my God, Nick, you were writing an email about something you thought had as... happened in the past, <laughs> and that's actually caused it to come into being.
1: <laughs> and I'll go back in the past and mention it again.
0: No, you won't. Mm. Shut up. Uh, <clears throat> interesting though. Though some, I was. Somebody
1: on Facebook this week said about they rewatched Star Wars with their son, and they said, Oh, the f- their first 40 minutes or something is like a B movie or something like that. And I just thought, Well, yeah, what?
0: <laughs> well, yeah, okay,
1: that's what it is. I'm but didn't you role. see American
0: oh. Graffiti? That's exactly what it was. It was mm-hmm. nostalgia for yeah. the Flash Gordon serials of the exactly. 1920s and 30s. Exactly. Dear JR and Tape, this is an interesting email, it might take us about 20 minutes. Okay. Dear JR and team, what an interesting couple of weeks. I thought that Sleep No More was a collection of great components that overall left me confused and, if I'm honest, bored. Yep. On the other hand, Face the Ravens components really shouldn't work and the plot is brittle, yet I enjoyed the final product and was engaged throughout.
1: That's a plan. Go
0: on. Funny how TV can work like that. I agree with all of your issues with Face the Raven, but as a piece of entertainment, it worked for me. You probably know that I've never been a fan of Clara. The Clara you described in the first 15 minutes of the episode was how I perceive her all the time. But nevertheless, I bought into the moment of her death. Yes, there's a lot about that scene that's easily picked apart, but everybody's done that already over the last week. I will name my single biggest gripe, though, and that is the lack of action from the Doctor, especially when contrasted with his I-must-save-adric desperation in Earthshock. <clears throat> I wonder, though, <clears throat> is Clara the only companion... Oh, I'm supposed to be reading this out in a Cockney accent. Hang on, let me try and get a Cockney accent. It's, oh, no. right, mate,
1: yeah, yeah. Go on, do well, it. Right, I, right, yeah. I
0: wonder, though, is Clara the only companion? <laughs> Steve Van Dyke. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I'll tell you what, I'll just do it in my normal voice, shall I? Do you want me to do it? off You won't even... <laughs> you won't even... The reason I'm supposed to be doing this in a Cockney accent is because it's from David Kitchen in Melbourne and he complained that when I read his emails out in an Australian accent, I do it in a Queensland accent, whereas he comes from Victoria. He said he wanted me to read it out in a Victorian accent. So I emailed him back and said I was going to do it as a Cockney street urchin.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you should, well, have wa- should have watched The Water Babies before this. I'm quite impressed that he actually managed to nail your accent to a particular part of Australia, to be honest. He nailed something <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, knelt- Well, he, maybe he didn't. Maybe they don't talk like that in Queensland. Maybe he just hates Queenslanders <laughs> and said that for that reason instead. He nailed something down, under. Oh, I say. I wonder, though, says uh, David, is Clara the only companion to have her moment of death on screen? We know Katerina and Adric were both off screen when they actually died, as was Perry in Mind Warp prior to JNT retconning her death. We don't know about Sarah, obviously, but I thought it very brave to show the actual moment the life leaves Clara's eyes on screen. And I actually liked the music, very Christoph Beck. And yes, Capaldi played it perfectly. This leads me to comment on JR's thoughts in his Starburst review. Have you read this, Your Starburst review? My review of uh, Face the Raven. Not yet. Alright, not yet. That's as in, no I shan't. <laughs> JR's thoughts in his Starburst review following our exchange on Twitter. I'd hate you to think I was just being a Twitter smart ass when I was trying to make a serious discussion point. If Clara is not 100% dead, I don't think half of fandom will feel it's a cop-out, per se. I think the feeling will be more like, we've seen this before, and just be disappointed. Mm. I was interested in your point regarding Danny and River being recurring characters Moffat has killed. I'll confess this hasn't occurred to me, and this is because, like RTD, I do take an atheist's view of these matters, and so view death as unequivocally absolute. Death is the end of life. You cease to exist. So any time where a character's consciousness continues in some form, to the point Danny can talk to Clara at the end of Death in Heaven, in my mind, the character hasn't died. I'm going to have to tell you what my contention was in the second Lee. Well, everybody who's listening to this who didn't read the review. Because I put it in the review rather than the podcast. When I do the review and the podcast... I was try and leave things for the review that aren't in the podcast and vice versa, so that I'm not just repeating the same mm, thing. Mm. And I came up with quite a major point in the review that I hadn't addressed in the podcast. So this email is going to make me address it now. And that's why it's going to take 20 minutes, because it's a bit of a biggie. Okay. Anyway, David continues and says, So I think that any debate about this is less about being pro or anti-Moffat, but one about the individual's perception of death and how that relates to drama, as you intimated in your review. I hope I haven't been too negative in these comments, as I did enjoy the adventure of Face the Raven, but it is an episode that provokes analysis, discussion and debate, and that's what television drama should do. I'm looking forward to Sunday's episode, and finding out why Avon wanted the Doctor to have a teleport bracelet. (laughs) Regards, David in Melbourne.
1: Now before you go into your bigger speech, just a quick thing about something you mentioned earlier, about the speed of the Doctor, or Doctor taking less action, mm-hmm. which we've seen over possibly the last couple of years, I think. Uh, does he mean action as in action, or action as in physicality?
0: Why? No, he's saying, why does the Doctor become so resigned to the fact that Clara's going to die so quickly, rather than saying, oh my God, Clara's going to die, All let's right. do something about
1: that. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it one was of the foreshadowed was... in the
0: episode. When he yeah. found out that uh, Rigsy was going to die and said, Well, uh, how do you tell somebody they're going to die? and was going to walk away and leave him. And yeah. Clara made him turn around and say, Right, let's do something about this. And Rigsy was saved. But the whole point of the episode is that in saving Rigsy, Clara had sacrificed herself. She's the one who makes the doctor turn around, and therefore she is the one who's the mm. cause of her own destruction.
1: But more than anything else in, in, in Doctor Who history, this, um, what's it called again, this chronodlock or the shade or whatever it is mm. that, that comes and kills... Quantum, quantum shade. Quantum shade. is seems to be the single most powerful piece of death-giving we've ever seen. The Doctor just can't reverse it. He can't do anything. It's like, oh, you've got it on your neck, you're going to die. There's nothing he can do about it. So how come <clears> this <throat> isn't, isn't more kind of all, you know, prevalent... Or will be more prevalent in the Doctor Who universe. It can't be, can it? It's too, It's just one of those things. Even a Dalek, you know? You could stick it on a Dalek.
0: It's a problem in the script.
1: It's too powerful.
0: Yeah. Uh, but, having said that, it's like Torchwood. Now that Torchwood exists, you think, where were they when <laughs> yeah.
1: X happened? Yeah, yeah, I know. Where
0: were they when Y yeah. happened? You can't not write something in because it's not... Been seen before no no okay. because you'd never get new stories
1: yeah, but it is so but powerful
0: but the problem with it therefore is not that well it's not the problem is not that it's so powerful but the problem is that having seen 51 years of the doctor run around and eternals and guardians nothing's too powerful for the doctor to take on if he wants to you can't write it into his character that he just accepts it he has to, everything we've ever seen him do, he has to fight against it. I'd
1: be interested to read more about the idea behind the Quantum Shades. It might be something that's been missed out of the... Because the it, it, whether it's just a word to make it sound snazzy, using the word
0: quantum, it may be that it works yeah. at such a level that it can't be... It's like a fixed point in time. It creates... Oh, yes, no, he's it, gone well, against fixed points. He went against the two-dimensional creatures in... I'm not saying it's a fixed point, I'm just saying it's... <laughs> but the no, th- what I'm saying is, mm, if the, if you give the Doctor a brick wall, he'll find somewhere to take the cement out. You give him a fixed point... Is that the same thing as Amy and Rory being stuck in New York then? Yeah, exactly. Mm. People didn't accept that because, you know, everything we've seen up to that point suggests that the Doctor would do something about it.
1: But what this feels like is that it's not just one quantum shade, there are other quantum shades around. It doesn't
0: make any difference, Lee. You're talking about the nuts and bolts of it when we're talking about the bigger picture.
1: Well, the bigger picture is, you know, if you're an enemy of the Doctor and this stuff exists and you can place it upon somebody, place it upon the Doctor.
0: No, that's not the bigger picture. Bigger picture is, would the Doctor just say, OK, fair enough, you're going to die?
1: Well, yeah, this one definitely would. So Why? Well, because he can't do anything about it. It's Clara. So, no, you see, he's resigned.
0: No, it doesn't make any difference whether he can do something about it or not. It's Clara. The Doctor would want to at least try to do something about it.
1: Well, he does, because he tries to get me to to take it off her and then she turns around and says I can't do it I'm not in control of it and it's at that point that's the point where he turns around and says I can't do anything about it or he doesn't actually say that it actually that's the point where Clara interrupts and says you know what I
0: brought this on myself Hmm. but this is it this is the doctor give him a brick wall and he'll find some way to get the cement out and take those bricks down it's not the end of the story yet is it but um, true enough this is the problem with that scene (laughs) Is that that scene requires the doctor to accept Clara's fate, even though that's not really part of his character, so the scene is requiring the doctor to behave in a do way you know What negates that
1: is the fact that she tries to take it off Rigsy and then she can't it's almost that 's a layer too much because it, it kind of undermines the
0: she does take it off Rigsy what do you mean
1: no, she offers to take it off Rigsy the uh quantum shade and then yeah. she can't because she the the deal has been moved over oh i see what you mean you mean a shielder i thought you meant clara sorry no 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 yeah a shielder yeah offers to take it off and then she realizes she can't because it's not on him anymore and then she says well the deal's been broken your deal mm. is with someone else now the deal's so, with the shade yeah so
0: it kind of it this one of those it, things it makes clara's death completely needless Oh, if we, obviously. Mm. And the brilliant irony of Clara's death is that it was the Doctor giving the shilder the patch that mm. made her immortal mm. that has ultimately caused Clara to die. Mm. The Doctor could have given that patch to Clara and made her his immortal playmate for all the rest of time. But instead, he gives it to a complete stranger and because of that action, six episodes later, four episodes later, whatever it is, Clara's dead. Because if it hadn't been a Shield there, things would have happened differently, presumably. You know, you can draw a line between those two events and say that's the irony of the situation. Mm. But the the thing is, you know, whatever way you want to hand wave it away, Clara tells him to accept it, a Shield says she can't do anything about it. It's not in the doctor's character just to accept it. If he's this is the guy who sat on the floor, in a cave, in the middle of Khan, and said, I've got four minutes, what do you want me to do? Knit you a jumper, etc., etc. this, that and the other. Four minutes was enough time for him then to do all these amazing things. Well, in the latest episode, all the business of his brain working overtime is he's falling down to his death towards some water. I've got seven seconds to work out how I'm going to save myself from mm. this. And here he is, he's given eight minutes at the point at which Clara finds out she's going to die. And he so it needs it.
1: it needs background on the shades, doesn't it? It needs something to suggest. No, to it life.
0: doesn't. What it needs is to not exist, but it can't not exist because you need to have that long scene between Clara and the Doctor. It's it's fundamentally wrong, and yet, and yet here you are trying to hand wave it away because it's so good. You don't care that it's wrong. <laughs> no, that's okay. Right, right. You, yeah. If it's that good, you don't care that it's wrong, but that doesn't mean that it's not wrong. It is wrong.
1: Because, I mean, what you could do is, you know, he runs out, It takes him 20 minutes to get to the TARDIS. She's obviously dead in the street, just goes back in time to when he's just left, sticks her in the TARDIS. Yeah, you can't escape the shade, but just keep travelling just just around until the thing catches up. And if it doesn't, ca- you know, maybe you can find something to help. it. So, yeah, I, I admit that, you know, just standing there for eight minutes looking kind of a bit sad. It's definitely not what. Or is it, does it come do. back to this business of where they need somebody to die in order that justice is seen to be served?
0: So. No, 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 Simon. No, no, forget no, about I'm not, the I'm not, nuts I'm, not, bolts I'm Just saying, it.
1: is that what's? Is it's, that what they're trying to get?
0: No, it's got nothing to do with how it's worked out on the screen. How it's worked out on the screen is just the writer putting in reasons and excuses for what they want to do. Mm. That scene is the writer wanting the Doctor and Clara to have an eight-minute conversation before she died and using any excuse possible not to have the Doctor run off and do something else instead. That's what it boils down to. It's got nothing to do with the excuses she gave him. It's got nothing to do with what these things are called. It doesn't make any difference. It's eight minutes of the Doctor and Clara Oh, yeah, no, I appreciate you saying that's about the writer's motives,
1: but what we're talking about is why didn't the Doctor go and do something about it?
0: Because the writer wanted the doctor to have an eight-minute conversation with Clara, mm. Mm. But, but that's how I, Are we discussing works?
1: the fact that that's supposedly flawed?
0: It is flawed. But
1: what I'm saying is, if it's not flawed, if you give a decent reason why the doctor wouldn't try and do something, there wrong. is
0: no decent reason, and that's the point. It's excuses. We'll it. we'll it you're looking it's at okay. it. You're looking at it from a very finite. Fictional perspective.
1: Oh yeah, no, I, I, I obviously I can completely see what the the writer's
0: done. You can give a really strong place. excuse, yeah. mm. but it's still okay. an, an excuse, right? It's not a good reason. No, okay. It's it's a really strong excuse, but it's not a reason. Mm. Okay. And there's a difference between the two things. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, but the thing he was bringing up from the review is I talked a bit about Stephen Moffat's religious analogies. Russell T. Davis was an atheist, Mm. and when Russell T. Davis was doing Doctor Who, he used a lot of religious iconography Mm. in a very provocative way. He had, at the end of series three, the Dobby Doctor rising up, Jesus-like, uh, you know to not save the master as it turned out but you know and this is throughout all I've been of Russell everybody
1: Russell's... praying for him at the same time oh basically. yeah 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 yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, throughout <laughs> Russell T Davis's Doctor Who yeah you know, hardly an episode goes by without you know, angels lifting up David Tennant's Doctor and flying into the top of the Titanic all this stuff is throughout Russell T Davis's Doctor Who but whenever he uses it it's almost like it's being used provocatively towards people who believe he's an atheist Mm. and it's almost like he's taking the piss out of anybody who's not his Doctor Who universe is an exceptionally secular universe and even when the master gets brought back to life in the end of time it's through potions and magic black magic Mm. Mm. it's not even through science it's just through black magic Mm. which again is like you know middle finger salute to religion Mm. Stephen Moffat, on the other hand, I don't know whether Stephen Moffat believes in God or not. I suspect he probably doesn't. Mm. You know, I think... Well, no, I'm not going to go to the end of that sentence, but there was an end to that sentence, but I suspect he probably doesn't believe in God. Mm. But Stephen Moffat's religious analogies are far more inclusive and... I will give you a specific reason and then I will posit a potential reason why. A specific example and then a potential reason. If you look at what happens with Danny, and you know what I was saying about two hours ago at the start of this podcast about Stephen Moffat telling one story and then another story. Mm. And he loves to foreshadow things by using something to open the door to do something else that wouldn't have been possible if you hadn't done the first thing first. Yeah. He knew at some point he was going to kill Clara off. I don't think it was always going to be Clara. I think Clara is going to leave in the name of the doctor and this would have been another companion entirely, but he knew that at some point he was going to kill a companion off. And what he did was he the year before, and if Clara had left at Christmas or last year or whatever, mm. this this would still have worked regardless of whether it was Clara's boyfriend. The year before he gives a companion a boyfriend Kills that boyfriend off so that the following year he can kill a companion off and the people who are watching it will have seen a death.
2: Mm.
0: But further than that, on the one hand, he does it in a very Harry Potter way. All this black dust and stuff. Mm. You know, all the kids watching Doctor Who last weekend have seen the Harry Potter films, right? I think a very tiny fraction of them probably haven't. They, they have seen this kind of stuff on screen before the raven flying in and the black dust flying out and all this kind of stuff.: It's very Harry Potter.:
1: rearranging flaws from this episode, actually.: The latest one.:
0: <clears throat> <clears throat> When:
1: That too is Harry Potter this.::
0: When Stephen Moffat kills off Danny Pink, he's doing that. A central character who's been in just about every episode of that series is killing him off. But what he does when he kills that character off is, he doesn't say, right, full stop. What he does is he says, okay, say for example, your uncle dies and you're six or eight, whatever. And your mum says to you, your uncle's died. And you say, what does that mean? And the parent says, they're no longer alive. They're no longer gonna be around. And the kid says, well, that's confusing. And it's not very nice. And the parent says one of two things. They either say he's gone to heaven. Mm. And although we won't be able to see him in heaven, he will still be a happy person and he will be living the kind of life that you live in heaven. Or the parent will say, well, he might be dead, but he will live on inside us, in our hearts and our minds. We'll remember him and we'll have happy thoughts about him and he'll live on in that way. Now, Stephen Moffat's got two children. I don't think that that is any kind of a coincidence. I think Stephen Moffat has probably had this conversation with his children at times in the past. And I think what Stephen Moffat has done is, rather than giving Doctor Who an entirely secular universe, I think Stephen Moffat has said, "Okay, how can we use science fantasy to analogise what religion is doing? So Danny Pink dies off.
2: Mm.
0: Right. He's either gone to heaven. We see him for an episode, two episodes, in the nether sphere. Mm. That's Danny. That's an analogy for Danny Pink going on and living a life elsewhere. Or he lives on in our hearts and minds. And that's what we see in Last Christmas. We have this whole big sequence where he's just in Clara's imagination, in her mind, in her dream. Stephen Moffat has given us, and with other characters like River Song and Miss Evangelista in Silence in the Library, where they live on as data ghosts, Stephen Moffat has given us a science fantasy universe that analogizes for how parents treat death with their children. And so when somebody like River Song dies, and yet the character still carries on, three things. It's a time travel show. So if somebody's dead, you can go back to before they died. Mm. But he has also posited the data ghost, data ghost existence for that character in an analogous heaven. Mm. And when she comes back in the name of the doctor, again, same as when Danny Pink is in Last Christmas, that is essentially the characters in the series conjuring up the dead person through their hearts and minds. Stephen Moffat has given us a universe in which all the tricky questions that children will ask when somebody dies are answered in science fantasy terms, allowing him to do what Russell T Davis promised every year, I'm going to get to the end of the series and one of the companions will be dead, only for it not to happen. And now Stephen Moffat can actually do that. Mm-hmm.
1: That's the same then as uh, Matt Smith, isn't it? Being wished back into existence. Through the hearts and minds.
0: Essentially, this is how... this is, People complain about... Uh, and this is the other thing that people complain about. Amy Pond died. Rory Williams died. And then they were back alive again. I lost count of the number of times in the 1970s when Sarah Jane Smith was crouching over the doctor's body, crying all over the place because she thought he was dead. And then he suddenly opens his eyes and it turns out he's alive. But the audience is supposed to think, just for a fraction of a second, is he actually dead? Stephen Moffat, whenever he kills off Rory or Amy or whatever, is basically just doing the same thing with an extra level of actual jeopardy. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: It's like he's doing the things that Doctor Who always shied away from actually doing. He's actually doing them all for real. I think it gives his universe a lot more colour and texture.
1: And actually, you know, he realises what he's doing because he makes jokes about it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah.
0: Anyway, those were my thoughts on that, and that's what David was replying to in the email. Mm. And that's what you missed by not reading the review, Neil. Uh, Lee. Neil. Neil. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting late, isn't it? We've been at it for uh, a long time. Right, okay, we'll be back next week then for the biggie. fray. Uh, but until then, I was JR.
1: I was Lee. I was Simon.
0: And we'll speak again soon.